There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. Meat Hunt, the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, I want to get to, I want to do all the introductions and explain where we're at. But first, I have a, a quick question just based off a painting that I just ran into in the entryway of the Wild Sheep Foundation. Um, do wolves get after bighorns? They do. I think I think um, mountain lion and clay mountain lion probably a little bit more of uh, a problem, certainly in the lower forty-eight. But yeah, wolves definitely into thin horn habitat and and big time up in BC and in Alberta. But you bet. It they just sure seems do. like they. I don't know, man. It just feels like like a little bit out of their. Like that kind of country seems a little bit out of their area of expertise. But they hit them in the winter or what? The bighorn, like down here in the lower 48 in the winter? Well, they'll, they'll hit them different times of the year, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, further south, desert bighorns, you've, as Greg just referenced, uh, mountain lions are a little bit tougher, tougher on sheep than wolves. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough place to make a living. Have there been cases where mexican gray wolves have killed desert bighorns do they know about that yet you know i don't i don't have any documentation of that i i have not heard that but i'm sure they would yeah man it seems like a formidable like when you when you factor the topography and then just like the horn structure and stuff it just seems like a formidable foe it, it it they really are if you if you look at the the way the animal is built you know the way their eyes are positioned on their heads. If you look at these mounts in this room, just just look at, you know how much they see. Uh, yeah, big you know, eyes bugging outside of their head. Yeah. You know their greatest defense. They see a, a long ways, a lot further than 
than we do. Uh, if you look at the country in which they live, it's the, the topography's tough. There's always escape terrain and places for those animals to escape. So, you know, they've survived. Uh, they've adapted and, and learned to, to deal with predator issues through time. But, yeah, it's, it's tough. There's a, I don't know if you're, there's a guy, I can't remember his name, a professor at University of Alaska at Fairbanks, and he wrote a, like a natural history book about Alaska, and in it he talks about an eyewitness account of a friend of his who watched a single lynx chase a doll ram down a gully, jump on its back, and kill it with a bike to the base of its neck. Yep. A lynx who's like a snowshoe hair specialist. Well, it's just not it's it's not just the four legged predators either. You have eagles and and other things. It, and in fact, I've observed firsthand uh, golden eagles. I, I was hiking an area one time, uh, working with sheep, and and overhead I saw a lamb go by. It, no, really? Oh yeah. So it, it it's it's not just the four legged predator. Wow, that's pretty nuts. I didn't, I heard that they kill them, but I didn't know they carried them off. I thought they just like ran them off, like somehow scared them or spooked them or ran them off ledges and then killed them. Like well, that. Yeah, the, I observed it firsthand. They pick them up. You know, they're small. Yeah. Tiny it's animals. Just a little lamb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We watched a golden eagle spend 20 minutes working over a bull elk. There's Di- two, two golden two, eagles. Yeah, working over a bull, Jeez. dive bombing his head. And you could tell this bull elk did not like it. He was agitated, man. I've flown surveys and almost had them land in the helicopter with you, and they are huge animals. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we, we should probably, uh, so, so like I said, we're at the, uh, you guys call it the World Headquarters? World Headquarters of the Wild Sheep Foundation. World Headquarters, Wild Sheep Foundation, Bozeman, Montana. Still in Bozeman? Still in Bozeman. It's Bozeman. Yeah, this is Bozeman. It's, it's almost almost Belgrade and almost Four Corners, but it's it's a so, Bozeman Bozeman address. So if I write you a letter, I put it, Bozeman You out. put Bozeman, yeah. Um, let, let's go around and do... Uh, Let's go around and do introductions. We'll do it like, uh, I like to do it as though I'm dealing cards, and so you're up. Uh, Garrett Longs, I'm the marketing and communications director here, uh, exhibits and sponsors manager, store manager. Um, what else, Gray? You clean See, toilets. Yeah, I clean toilets um, on a frequent <laughs> basis. Uh, and I came over here just recently, about three months ago. I previously was the conservation leader over at Sitka. Um, sick of gear just down the road um, and came over here to just do real conservation work and it, it's been a blast man it's been pretty cool so you guys probably have a you probably had a relationship with this organization when you were there because i know sick yep. does a lot of stuff in support of yeah so know. so my job there was actually kind of inverse of what it is here i i took in all the contracts conservation contracts and decided what we spent money on prioritized conservation organizations so it was great actually coming to the Wild Sheep Foundation because they were one of one of the groups that I use as an example, you know, going through like 990 forms and things like that with other organizations like, hey, this is what we're looking for. These are the type of projects we want to fund, um, all that kind of stuff. So it was pretty cool getting the call from Gray. But, yeah, I had worked with them a lot. And then I still work with them over there a lot too because they support us very heavily. That's great. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. Uh, Clay Brewer, I'm the Bighorn Program Lead, uh, uh, Conservation Director for the Wild Sheep Foundation. I, I worked for almost 30 years, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, was the, did a lot of things, was the, the Bighorn, Mule Deer, Pronghorn guy for years, uh, served in various leadership roles, uh, actually served as the Interim Wildlife Director for a year and a half, and, and uh, so my experience, I have uh, 
primarily on the ground experience. Um, I'm not necessarily enamored with these sorts of things that we're doing here today. Uh, I've, I've spent my life out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, I enjoy that that aspect of it. So uh, I spent the majority of my my career uh, restoring sheep, bighorn sheep in Texas. They were extirpated by about 1960, and so through our efforts that, that oh, we've they done hung there, out as late as 1960. Oh yeah, and then got extirpated. The last documented sighting of a native Texas bighorn occurred October of 1958 in the Sierra Diablo Mountains, which is a little bit south of uh, of the Guadalupe Mountains. Usually, when we're talking about something vanishing, it's 20 years earlier. Now, it was 1960. Was what what we guess anyway. So after that. Uh, Lots of work, uh, lots of transplants, lots of things going on, but uh, bighorn sheep are at late 1,800 population levels right now. Was anybody, okay, in 1960 in Texas, after the last one vanished, was it, what, a day later they started recovery? I mean, were they, were oh, they no. already paying attention to it as they were on their way out? Well, there was a guy hired in the 40s. And uh, this is a guy by the name of Birch Carson. He was hired to document the decline of bighorn sheep in Texas. And so today, well, I'll give you my experience. I, I was a younger guy then and, and was hiking through the mountains. And it was actually, uh, we we did and still guide all of our own sheep hunts. So I was preparing for a, for a, had a sheep hunter coming here. The sta- the, you mean the state guide? State, state of Texas, yes. And you guys give out how many tags every year? Well, it, it varies. Now, now 15, 16, 17 tags every year. So we've come a long ways. So if you draw a bighorn tag in Texas, you go out and hunt with a, you go out and are guided by a state biologist or? Yeah, well, if you buy a state tag, uh, there are also private landowner tags. That's a little okay. bit different. Yep. Um, some some hunters prefer to bring their own their own guide, which which is fine. Uh, we like that too. Uh, it makes us no difference. But uh, so anyway, you you asked me about the did did they see it coming? And and um, Texas was no different than the rest of the states where you you hear about the domestic sheep issues, and we lost our sheep for the very same reasons. And so a guy by the name of Birch Carson was hired in the 40s to document the disappearance of bighorn sheep in Texas. And so I was getting ready for a sheep hunt, and I was hiking along. It was in January, and the, it was pretty cool cool in the mountains. And um, so I was, I was walking down the ridge, and I decided to get off the ridge, and I started hiking down a deer trail. And so I w- walked the, the deer trail for a ways, and I came into an opening, a small bowl in the bottom of these three just three knobs around and and it got still the wind stopped blowing and it got still and i thought man this would be a great place to eat my lunch took my pack frame off sat out on the ground i looked over on the ground it said there was a carving in the rock and it said wb carson sheep inspector 1943 and so it became a hobby of mine uh i spent a lot of time by myself and so i started looking for these things and every time i thought i was the only human being to ever see this I would look around on the ground, and I would find another carving, and it would say, Sheep Inspector, uh, W.B. Carson. And so I found caves the guy lived in. There's one. There's a cave in the Texas mountains where the guy's clothes are still hanging in the cave today. And so so he documented the decline. Oh, that's nuts, man. That's yeah. like Boone. In Boone's day, they'd always write their names on. Oh, it's it's Carving names in the rocks, carving the trees. It's interesting history. There, There's a... 
uh, a guy named Bob Anderson, you guys are probably familiar with, great Rams, one, two, three. Yep. Uh, he became interested in, in Birch Carson. And so he, uh, he actually wrote, wrote a book. He's got one. I wrote the forward for his book and, and, uh, he never has published it. He hadn't done anything with it. So he's trying to figure out who his audience was, but it's called something like the Desert Wanderer or something like that. So the guy was a taxidermist and it, just an interesting history. World War II veteran, uh, was injured in World War II and came back and hiked those mountains with a limp. And so, uh, you know, pretty rough country. So, uh, so short time later in the mid fifties, there was a cooperative agreement developed between the, the, uh, at that time, the Texas Game Fish and Oyster Commission, um, uh, Boone and Crockett Club, Arizona Game and Fish Department, uh, uh I'm trying to remember who else, uh, Wildlife Management Institute, uh, we brought sheep in from Arizona and, uh, try, and, and in the early years, there, uh, you know, in the early 1900s, like most jurisdictions, it was people focused on protections. Uh, there were, like in Texas, 1903, there was a hunting prohibition enacted. And so then, then in the mid 50s, it was propagation. Uh, you know, there's always a joke running around in those days. Most states, the Desert Bighorn Council was formed in the 50s because every state was in the same boat. And, uh, some people would have, you know, they only had two sheep left and they knew them by name, you know, and Bob didn't feel so well. It was, it was kind of the, the joke, the, the running joke. And so, so anyway, so propagation efforts were implemented in the mid 1950s. And, and since that time, uh, uh, 207 wild sheep were translocated to Texas, uh, coming out of Arizona. No, different places. I'm okay. sorry, and I think I, I think I have those numbers wrong. It's more like it's it's it's. Uh, I think uh, a total of 107 came from Nevada, 31 from Arizona, six from Mexico, and two from Utah. So that's the lineage of of today's desert bighorn populations in Texas. And so uh, so we worked together. We we traded in the early years. We traded Arizona uh, for pronghorn. They they had. They were short on pronghorn at that time. Texas had plenty of pronghorn, so we would swap animals. And in more recently, I, I, I can tell you, I was at a in in those days the it was a FNAS convention, and people were coming by my booth from the state of Nevada, and some of them were pretty upset with Texas, and I couldn't figure out why what the what the story was, and and I thought, man, just having a bad day. And so later on, I. I uh, was reading the newspaper and the headlines with letters about three inches big said state of Nevada trades turkeys for bighorn sheep. <laughs> or, uh, and, and so the, 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 the Nevadans were not real happy about that trade. And, and so, but, uh, if it, if it were not for that, then none of us would have any wildlife. Um, and so as, as time went on in our case, uh, what's interesting about that is the landowners, you know, we had problems with with uh, disease issues in, in the 30s and, and uh, lost all of our sheep later on. It was a slow progression. We lost those sheep. And so we worked. Texas is a private landowner state, uh, 97% privately owned. But uh, domestic sheep, landowners raised domestic sheep. And then later on, the, landowner, the very landowners that we worked with that where the problems occurred years ago, are the very same landowners that helped us restore sheep today, their descendants. Yeah. And so 
we did that together. And so, like I say, today we're probably 1,800 animals. Um, so we've surpassed the late, the, the late 1,800 population levels and, and numbers continue to span, uh, expand, populations continue to grow. And so, so far, so good. Uh, but it only took, you know, 60 years or so or 70 years for that to happen. Start so, figuring it out. Yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll dig into that whole story okay. a whole bunch, man. It's interesting. Uh, and then Giannis, of course. Go ahead. Um, <clears throat> Scott Peckham, I'm the big game ecologist for the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation in Northeast Oregon and Southeast Washington. So I work on anything purview of the, or the big game headline and uh, so wear a lot of hats. Um, I should tell you all about the elk tag I drew. That would be good. I've, I heard the rumors extremest already. extreme <laughs> southeast corner of the state. Okay, you know it real well. You got, some, way, you got well. some waypoints. Um, <laughs> I've seen some big animals in that part of the country. That's what I want to hear. But I know people that really know it really well. I know the sheep country better than the elk country there, but I do see big bulls in there when I'm doing sheep work. So, so you you focus on sheep in that area? Uh, typically, yeah. In in southeast Washington, I'm usually up there working on the sort of the Hell's Canyon initiative work that's going on. Gotcha. Um, so you you back up like like you inform and back up the tribe's perspective on big game management. Exactly. And Population that's interesting and because that's interesting because you're actually looking at two different states. Yes. Yeah. Almost three, but yeah, two. Both southeast Washington. So there's three tribes under under one treaty. Um, the Walla Walla, Cayuse, and Umatilla, um, and they their traditional territory sp- expanded the, the state boundaries there. So most of the northern Blue Mountains uh, over towards um, past La Grande, Oregon, down south towards John Day. So parts of various basins. So what's your like? What's your professional mandate then? To basically protect, conserve, and restore big game populations and their habitat. That's our program mission. And that's, so, a, that's a directive coming from those tribes? Yes. Yeah. We have a first foods mission for our Department of Natural Resources, which is fairly well staffed. We have about 100 employees and DNR itself. Our wildlife program is pretty small, about nine employees. Um, but yeah, under the big game mantra, we are, that's our directive to protect, restore, and enhance habitat and populations. And I'm guessing you must coordinate with states and fed. All, all the time, yep. Yeah. We work on, because basically a lot of the, the wildlife habitat where the treaty hunting occurs, where the, the rights are or they're allowed to, to uh, exercise their treaty hunting right, is on federal public lands. So gotcha. we work with the, st- the land managers of BLM and Forest Service. And then we work with the states, obviously, because they tend to do more of the population level management. So we coordinate with them pretty closely. Yeah, like the feds got, the, the feds are administering a lot of the landscape, but the states are administering a lot of the wildlife on the landscape. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So decisions about land, land use and land management planning, we're very involved in that with the, with the Forest Service and BLM. And you get to spend a lot of time looking at sheep. I do. Yeah. Is that, very is that very high, fortunate. Is that a high priority? Um, I'd say yes, just conservation wise. Um, the, the tribe is, is very interested in expanding, um, populations of sheep. We have a lot of historically good sheep habitat in, in those parts of the country. Um, you've been, I think you've been to Hell's Canyon. Oh yeah. And I've gone out looking at bighorns in Hell's Canyon. And that those populations have struggled. Um, so there's a lot of good work that can be done. And so I think that's where our interest is, um, Obviously, there's you've probably heard about the mule deer issues that are going on. We have we do have declines in mule deer populations, and but elk are pretty stable, large populations of elk in the Blue Mountains, which you'll get to see. Um, but yeah, sheep is a, sort of our biggest conservation concern on, on on the big game front. 
I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but is that because things are getting worse or because they could be so much better? Um, I think in our corner of the world there, it's, we're sort of a, a stagnant, stagnant sort of population that has leveled off. So I think we could, there's a lot we can improve. I think we can make some gains for sure. Gotcha. For sure. But we're not, we haven't had a, a disease, a large die off in several years, but we're, we're only a little ways away from one. We're always on the, the, the cusp. So I think there's a lot of work we can do and, and this kind of uh, forum is a good place to discuss that. Gotcha. Go ahead. Steve Gray Thornton. I'm the president and CEO. Um, we're here, obviously, at the, at the world headquarters, but we also maintain offices in Cody. We have um, an education coordinator in Nevada. Uh, Clay is remote in Texas. Uh, we've got a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., and then our Montana uh, conservation director is also in Germany. So we, we base international operations out of Germany. We work in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. Isn't it funny how everyone hates lobbyists, but lobbyists can come from any... Like, people just, like, are like, oh, a lobbyist, and they, you register that must be negative. But to think that there are, like, conservation lobbyists working yeah, in D.C., you people know, always envision a lobbyist as, like, some guy out to do something evil, you well, know Well, he, I mean? he does. He does smoke cigars, so he, he, he plays, you know, he plays that lobbyist role well. You know, we, but he's, out, we, there, but he's we, out there lobbying on behalf of wild bikes, right? He is, and he's lobbying on behalf of, uh, yeah, wild sheep and wild sheep restoration. But, you know, we called him our advocate and, and our legislative affairs director and finally, just, just just call me a lobbyist. That's what <laughs> everyone knows that I am. So, you know, we just cut to the chase, and that's what he is. We were just—I was just back with him uh, two weeks ago. Spent three days uh, advocating, you know, advocating for bighorn sheep programs and tenhorn sheep programs. So. so, when you when you guys are doing that, like when you're down in D.C., um, what are are you meeting with? Do you tend to be meeting with individual politicians, or do you tend to be meeting like more on the agency level? Both. So we we meet with the federal agencies. So all the land management all, agencies, you know, the US, U.S. Forest Service. Most bighorn sheep live on uh, U.S. Forest Service land. About in clay, what eighty eighty somewhat percent of bighorn sheep live on uh, on the forest. Seventy eighty percent. Um, BLM, interesting enough, has huge holdings in Alaska. Alaska's got yeah. 25% of all doll sheep and thinhorn sheep in, in North America. So pretty, pretty huge population there, 40 to 50,000 doll sheep. Um, so we, 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 you know, we meet with the BLM, we meet with the Forest Service. At times we'll meet with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. At times we'll meet with the National Park Service. And then on the Hill, we'll, we'll meet with uh, representatives and senators and their staff. So um, pretty, pretty broad base. The, the issues that we're dealing with are primarily land use issues, um, some grazing issues, and um, separation issues between domestic sheep and bighorn sheep and now even thinhorn sheep. Yeah, that, that, that's what I'd like to get to and spend some time on because I think that's, that's kind of seems like we're so much of the conversation is right now around sheep but i want to do a little bit of backing up and i'll let you guys you guys can just kind of decide by making quick glances among each other to see who should handle what but i want to like really quickly bring people up to speed on just like sheep taxonomy which i think can be a little bit confusing um, we don't need to go global we'll just keep it north america but is a fair is like when you say like bighorn thinhorn is that a fair is that a fair 
if you're going to take all of our country's sheep or U.S. and Canada and make some sort of division, it seems like people start with bighorn, thinhorn. You bet. So, so you have, you know, let's, let's take North America as, as Mexico, U.S., and Canada. Okay, perfect. Um, so in, in Mexico, you have the desert bighorn sheep. Um, in in the lower 48, you have the Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep and the desert bighorn sheep. Then we've got, you know, there's kind of uh, um, splitters and lumpers. There's, yes. there's some divisions that come off of There's a California bighorn sheep that's really a Rocky Mountain. It didn't come from California. It came from British Columbia, of all places. Um, there's a Sierra Nevada uh, bighorn sheep. There's a Peninsula desert bighorn sheep. So there's, there's a bunch of kind of subspecies. But the bottom line is there's desert bighorn sheep, Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep, and then as we go north... You've got the stone sheep, which is primarily in northern British Columbia. And that's a thin horn sheep. That's a thin horn. And then the, the white sheep is the dolls. So the stone sheep range in BC um, depends on the research you're looking at, but there's some new DNA studies that are, that are pushing to the point that that's really the only place they are. Uh, and that the stone sheep, and we still call them that, but the stone sheep that are in, in the Yukon Territory are actually fannin sheep, or just a, a cross, if you will, uh, and dark pelliage of a cross between a well, white sheep, a doll sheep, and the stone sheep. And the doll sheep are in Alaska, Yukon, and Northwest Territory. Or just the color phase of the dolls. Mm. Yeah, pelliage. Which really irritates people. Oh, because yeah. if you, you know, you think you got your four North American wild sheep, right? Like, that's a big thing. You want to get your desert, your Rocky Mountain, your stones, and your dolls. But, you know, they're starting to say, and Clay was explaining this to me earlier, you know, now they're going, well, maybe that dolls is just, that, or that stones, what you think is the stones is actually just a color phase of an actual doll. So it'd be like you going around and saying, man, yeah, I've, I've shot a black bear and a grizzly bear, and then finding out actually your black bear was, or your, what you think was your grizzly bear was just a brown phase black bear yeah yeah i got you but but like when you get up i want to confuse myself now i want to stay stay below the the u.s canada border for a minute when you hear of the california the california's iraqi and then you hear in the old days that people had this idea there's the audubon mm-hmm. was iraqi right in the missouri river breaks we actually have an audubon in our uh, conference room now extinct although there's some debate on that with with dna you know the the dna studies that we can do now and the research you know the 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 samples we can use um there's even some conflict of whether or not the audubon was truly a uh, a separate substance that's what i was reading about recently yeah but the bottom line is we've we've repatriated bighorn sheep into the area that the audubon was the missouri river breaks which is kind of the classic beautiful big uh, Rocky Mountain sheep of of Montana, and then so now jump up into Canada and going up into Alaska. Like at the time of European contact, would it just looked like one continuous string of sheep that just happened to get whiter the more farther north you went, or were those populations like broken up? No, they were broken up, and um, you know there is there is certainly a difference between a bighorn sheep and a thin horn sheep. Um, so the, the thin horn sheep, and I don't know exactly what latitude they're, they're above, but, um, 
you know, those the, the, the stones on the dolls definitely look different than, than a Rocky Mountain bighorn. The Rocky Mountain bighorn are down in southern B.C., um, you know, the, 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 the front of the Rockies in Alberta, and then basically go down through the Dakotas, uh, a little bit in Nebraska, um, Clay was just in Oklahoma. We now have uh, bighorn sheep in Oklahoma, um, and then desert in Texas. And then you kind of, as you go west um, and, and and further south, you get into the deserts. But there's some some states that have both. Nevada has the Nelson bighorn, Rocky Mountain bighorn, and Colorado, or I'm sorry, California bighorn. But we really treat those. We treat the California and the Rocky as the same. If if you look at the work and how it was done, you know everybody named something in the, in the eighteen hundreds. They everybody threw a, a label on it, and and then there was a guy named Cowan about nineteen forty or so uh, that that actually maybe the sixties. Uh, I can't remember exactly, but anyway, he did a lot of the original work, and they were measuring skulls and horns and and looking at different ways. Well. In the 90s, uh, uh, Rob Ramey and John Wayhausen uh, did some of that same work. And when it all came out, it, I mean, the, I guess the short, and I, I tend to think simple, is sheep or sheep. Uh, and, and they described stones and dolls to the north. So it's really two, two species, uh, Rocky Mountain or, or bighorn sheep to the south and, and uh, thin horns to the north. And then the subspecies, they described three, Rocky Mountains. And they said Californias are the same. And there's lots of discussion. A lot of states don't agree, and a lot of a lot of folks go round and round over that. But then there was Sierra Nevada and deserts, and uh, but there were they were me- measuring orbitals and st- taking various skull measurements. And uh, this will be ironed out very soon. The, the genomics work that's occurring right now will answer every one of these questions. So just stand by; it's coming. Yeah, it's interesting to watch the way the genetics work has changed. Because when I was working on, uh, I was working on my book American Buffalo, and and you read, you know, back a hundred years, and people had there were seven different kinds, you know, and it, it was mostly just different people not orchestrating their activities, but we're seeing something somewhere and giving it a name, and seeing something somewhere giving it a name. Yep. And then always very eager to identify uh, populations that weren't there anymore. And have it be that it was something entirely different. Well, in Texas, they had, uh, Texana, uh, they thought they had a different subspecies in Texas. It was most likely Mexicana, that subspecies. So it, it wasn't unique, but you'll still hear people talk about that. Are there any places in uh, Are there any places in Canada where a bighorn and a thinhorn sheep would run into each other? You know, I, I, I've thought about that. In fact, we were kicking around that that very thing earlier, and and it's uh, honestly no. But again, sheep are sheep. Um, you know, they they uh, for for what we know, the chances of them crossing paths probably slim to none. Just the the habitat that they use and those sorts of things. But uh, they're, like they're geographically separated, yeah, exactly by barriers that they're not likely to right. cross. Exactly. Yeah. You guys have some cool graphics in here that show what the where the pop, like the population distribution now relative to when things were really dire and bad relative to when things were like relatively unexploited. To what year do you have to go back um, before you hit like what would have been kind of like pre-contact baseline? 
meaning no extirpated, like no extirpated regional, no regional extirpations. You know, that's, that's a very tough question. There was a, uh, Seton in the 1929. Ernest uh, Thompson. Uh, yeah. Ernest, yeah. Ernest Seton. Yeah. yeah. You know, he, what were the numbers? 1.5 to 2 million, million, something, yeah. something yeah, like that. Yeah, those guys paid fast and loose with <laughs> oh, numbers. Oh, too, exactly. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. And, yeah. and there are folks today that will, that will argue with those numbers are a lot more effective at arguing those numbers than I or, am. Or at least the confidence interval is really wide on that. Well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, that, that's a tough thing. But, you know, if you, if you try to read, uh, you know, some of the accounts, Lewis and Clark's, and, you know, how much did they, you know, they talked about many, many animals. I don't know what that means. Uh, but if you, you know, all the way, you, you, you can trace some of that. It's particularly desert bighorns, uh, you know, 1700s and things like that when the conquistadors were traveling. You know, the, the, the missions, the priests describe what they observed. And it's, so it's pretty interesting. But the numbers are always tough. Uh, you know, if you look at in the 50s, uh, what we do know is that numbers had probably declined to about 15,000, 17,000 animals, something like that. So they got pretty low. So unless Seton was wildly off, there was still a big reduction. There was, a, there was a, far more than there were today. You know, in, in terms of counting numbers, you guys familiar with how for a long time the fashionable number for bison was 60 million? And, like, you look into where that number came from. Well, Seton kind of, like, collated the whole thing, but it came from basically... A big herd going by. It seemed to take days to go by. Later, Colonel Dodge of Dodge City Infamy has a conversation with another guy who saw the same thing. And hell, he must have been three miles away. And through this, <laughs> right, yep. comes this like wild estimation of how many there must be. Yep. So it is frustrating. I'm reading this book right now, Grizzlies in the Southwest. And the first part of the book is trying to collate all the cases where someone identified one but you get into just terminology yep and being like is this what is this guy talking about like what is you know whoever's keeping records during the coronado expedition what is he talking about when he says x is that what he means yeah i don't know i'll send you a story of the only grizzly bear killed in texas Uh, (laughs) i just read about that did you yeah in the Davis, Davis Mountain. Mountains, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just read that It's story. in the Smithsonian, the skull is. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I could see that it'd be like exceedingly difficult to get a sense of what was where. But you could picture that, I mean, is it, like it's fair to say like, like you take like Nevada, you take Montana, was like more of it was sheep country than not. Oh, yeah. If you look at, if you look at the mountains of Nevada and look how it's laid out and compare that to, say, Texas. You, know, you can see just only the far west part of Texas, and if you look at at where Scott works, uh, you know just just some of the the heritage that Native Americans have passed down, the the stories and pictographs. We have a pretty good 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 idea of where they occurred. Uh, again, that, that's interesting. Just representational art, huh? Yeah, like these people are drawing them, so yeah, they must be familiar with them. Same same story in Texas. I can show you pictographs of, of bighorn sheep in Texas. That, uh, but but numbers we you know it's. It's it's an educated guess, yeah. that's for sure. To, I think it's a fair sir, assumption to say that we had a lot of sheep, yeah. and they were their distribution was wide. Their their the use of them culturally and and for materials and food was widespread. People were the first explorers were encountering big encountering bighorn bows, 
out way into Nebraska and out into the plains. The plains Indians were using bows made out of bighorn sheep horns. Now, wasn't so, it most common though, like right? Yeah, out of the park. Yes, because they, they used were the hot com- water. Yep, they were coming, yeah. basically being traded for, and and you know the the pictograph record is very widespread. So I think it's it's fair assumption to say we had a lot of sheep. They were widely distributed. Um, a lot there was a lot of cultures that were built around sheep. Um, and obviously, I think you've probably read Journal of a Trapper. Yeah. Osborne Ruffle. I mean, some of his descriptions. This is a guy that's seen Yellowstone Park area in its sort of in prime form and using descriptions of immense numbers of mountain sheep in the wintertime. So, like, I think someone that uses the word immense numbers He's of not mountain seen a sheep. Dozen. You know, <laughs> this isn't a herd of 100 or 15 sheep on the side of a hill. It's it, the winter range was numerous. There was a lot of sheep there. Have least, you read Francis Parkman's Oregon Trail? I have not. So he, he, he was a historian, and he wrote, like at the time, the definitive history of the French and Indian War, but he had health problems and was told to come out and spend time out in the West. And he comes out and travels on the Oregon Trail, and I think this is 1846. He actually winds up traveling with the Oglala Sioux, probably was in the same camp with Crazy Horse when Crazy Horse was 13. They go up into the Black Hills, to get lodgepole pine for tent lodgepoles. The guys he's traveling with get onto a big herd of bighorns and kill a bunch by throwing rocks down at them. So you get it, like, that's not two. That's like a size, there must be like sizable groups if that's your hunting strategies to hurl rocks down and successfully yeah. kill a bunch. Yep, those, those kind of accounts, I think we're piecing all that, that information together, cultural accounts, early explorer accounts, we know what their range is and modern day we know how many sheep of the habitat can support so we can kind of piece it together you know like what the numbers must right. be like. right. so if you if you had to express like how bad it got what's the best way to express how bad it got because you could is it because you don't know the beginning number so it's hard to do it numerically yeah like how do you guys think about it when you think about restoration is it filling in the map or is it achieving numbers uh, it's a little bit of both. If you, you know, you look and you, you're referencing this map that we've got in our in our conference room, and you know, let's say if we're using Seton's numbers of you know one to two million sheep, let's use a lower number of one million. Um, you know, throughout North America, we reduce those in the 1960s down to twenty five thousand. So twenty five thousand in what's now the U.S. or what, U.S. What's now U.S. The U.S. Uh, all of North North America, U.S. Canada, Mexico, Bighorns though. Okay, so yeah. so not not no. not not, like, not the thin horn. The thin horn range is actually still distribution, still pretty much the same. Yeah, because they haven't come up against like the obstacles, right? No, they haven't, uh, and that's and what that's what they're trying to prevent. But but the bighorns did. So you know, you're looking at you know if it's five hundred or one million or one point five or two million dollars, we or two million um, sheep, we reduce those numbers down to twenty five thousand by the late nineteen sixties. Today we're at about eighty five thousand bighorn sheep in in Canada. U.S. and Mexico. So, so got, I mean, it's been a good restoration. Twenty-five thousand. Twenty-five thousand in all of North America. And, and, and at the, I want to talk about why it got that way. But at the low point with sheep, were you then finding that you had states? I know we talked about Texas. Were there multiple states that had completely run out? You bet. You bet. You know, if you look at you know, some of the data that we'll show, you know, we'll we'll reference remnant populations. Some were just gone. Texas gone. 
Um, Nevada was down to a remnant population. They're a, they're an absolute incredible success story. You know, they had, they had a hundred or two hundred. You know, what does remnant mean? Two hundred sheep. They're up to eleven thousand desert bighorns right now. They probably got about twelve thousand to thirteen thousand bighorn sheep in Nevada today. And they were down to what's called a remnant. Remnant which is in, sub in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, which would be sub one hundred. You bet. So it's pretty amazing. Um, what states were like the big holdouts? Wyoming strong. Really? Like, so the Wyoming, uh, Wyoming stayed strong? Wyoming did pretty well. Um, I think Montana did pretty well. Like uh, hanging Colorado, out Colorado pretty well, but still. Who was, who was housing? Uh, what states provided the last refugia for the deserts? Desert bighorns. Like what states would had like wound up when all the smoke cleared? Clay, Arizona. Arizona. Uh, New Mexico. Did, no, no yeah. New Mexico was down. So They were way pretty, down. Pretty much, pretty much Mexico and, and, and Arizona. California. You know, they, I, I don't remember how low the numbers got in California. Uh, Nevada's got, I mean, most of them are remnant. It, it was rough. And Mexico held on to some. Mexico did. Um, in the Sierra Madre? Where, you know, most of it was just, well, in the Baja Oh, okay, all right, yeah. Yeah, I'm, Baja, I'm, I'm, I'm Sonora. Wrong part of the country, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, because Baja, man, like as far as like uh, re- representational art. Yes. Baja of, North. And yeah, then, you, I've been spent time down there. Man, there's tons of pictographs. Oh, yeah. Pictographs oh, yeah. of big, big horns and mule deer, you know. And they've, and they've held their own even today. I mean, they've, they do pretty well. Um, I mean, there are a lot of sheep. Uh, in Sonora alone, I, I, I can't remember the numbers exactly, but there are probably in Sonora, Mexico alone, probably 7,500 sheep just in that state. And then, in Sonora? Yeah. yeah. We hunt down there. I never run into one. Must be in the wrong part of the... <laughs> um, what was the... Dry, like? I kind of already know this answer because I know it was like disease and pot hunting. But like, what made it so bad? Like, how did it get so bad? Well, there were, there were lots of things, that, a combination of things. Uh, civilization, uh, railroads Just were moving in a, through. In a blanket term, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and all the wonders that it brings. Yeah, and, and Scott can speak to the stuff a little bit further north. And, but as far as the, the stuff in, in the south, you know, if you read Texas history, the railroad came through, and you'd read accounts where, you know, they were feeding railroad workers. Uh, and a guy would hunt meat for the railroads, and he would hit the hit hit where our prime habitat is, and he would say, "I had them in a box canyon, and I got every one of them." And and so he would take the meat back, feed railroad workers. But it, it was disease issues and, and competition for forage and uh, limited water and forage with with domestic livestock that it, that had come in later, and and people were trying to feed their families. It was tough places to to make a living. So if you, if you break out, like let's say you break out market hunting, um, and who was that famous uh, photographer that used to work out of Miles City? Uh, Huffman, L.A. Huffman. He, he was taking pictures in the early 1880s of market hunter camps where they had just all kinds of bighorns lined up that they're killing along the Yellowstone. But if you were going to take out, if you're going to divide it like, ha- let's say you had habitat issues, okay, so grazing competition, water, whatever, market hunting and disease are are they tiered out or are they all just equal players oh no it's if typically if you if you're trying to piece the story together that scott described 
you typically look at land use history and you look at look at how things occurred or what might have occurred and today the the greatest obstacle that we face is disease and so chances are that was the greatest threat the thing that caused the most problems in the, in the 1800s uh along with those other things but but in in my view it would be diseases uh, and competition for forage um, and limited water in the desert environment anyway. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, just to give you a perspective, like if you think about it in, in terms of grazing and um, we'll just use a Northeast Oregon example in that, that corner of, of Oregon, uh, Wallowa County, where Hell's Canyon is located, there was about the turn of the century, there was 300,000 sheep grazing in that county. No. Yes. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco, and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. 
I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Yep. So th- there was an immense number of sheep, domestic sheep, yeah, yeah, in, yeah, so. sorry, d- 300 domestics grazing in Wallowa County. So we, that was a, a the big... County the county 300, alone had 300,000 domestic yep. sheep. Yep. So we are you know, obviously it was great grazing land for domestic sheep. And so people were grazing. There, there was no... Taylor Grazing Act, it was sort of a free-for-all on the public land system, which is, you know, probably not fully established at that time. Um, and there, we had a lot, of, a lot of domestics right in the bighorn habitat. So we should probably talk about the disease, like disease, when we say disease carried them off. Is it a host of diseases that hits bighorns, or is it a disease that hits bighorns? It is a disease complex. So there's, Clay can fill in the gaps, but there's Based on our last decade of research, I mean, this is, it's been an evolving story over time where people are just, we're constantly learning new information all the time as our techniques get, and science get better and, and uh, our experimentation gets better and our insights get, get, get better. Um, but what all the research points to now is it's one particular bacteria that these, our, our North American sheep did not evolve with. So they, they're hosted by the domestic species. When they come in contact with each other, the bighorn sheep contract that bacteria. They are no longer able to fight off other infections. So it compromises their cilia and their, and their trachea. So they aren't able to move other bacteria out, and they succumb to basically pneumonia, but from other, other it's a, bac, you know, a my, polymicrobial disease is the, the term. So they're very naive to this disease. The, the MO, it's called Mycoplasma ovinomoniae. So we call it MOV for short. And just what's, it's a the, mouth. what's the term for short? MOV. MOV. M period OV. Okay. Um, and it's, and this, this is a disease that seems to have originated in, in Europe. Old, old world sheep in, in Europe. And yep. they perhaps were exposed to it for 10,000 years. They had evolved or, with it. Yeah. Correct. So they... they carry it they're they're not clinically affected by it. we don't see the the same symptoms that we do in bighorns where they're coughing or having nasal sinus discharge um so it doesn't appear to have a strong population level effect or has no population level effect on domestic sheep so some lambs will succumb to it you know and once they're kind of getting close to weaning but our bighorn sheep lambs will be infected early on, and it's it's very fatal. And the strain there's there's many strains. They all they have different severity and the reactions within bighorn populations. So, it's it's a complicated disease issue, and that's why it's taken us so long to sort this all out. So, was was this disease hitting bighorns before anybody knew that this disease For was sure. hitting bighorns? For sure, yeah. It's just it was like I don't know what happened to them all. I mean, if you think about the habitat that these animals live in, how frequently do we, how how well studied our herds now with our with our level of technology and our dedication? But back in the eighteen hundreds, I don't know. I don't know how many people were looking at them. Yeah, Steve, you, know, you, be gone. you look. Um, you know, a, a great analogy would be looking at what we did to Native American tribes with smallpox. 
it's you know it's so similar. Um, and, and when we talk about mycoplasma ovo pneumonia as a setup agent, um, you know, kind of in, in, in lay terms, even though they're not the same, you know, it, it, it's kind of HIV in sheep. Uh, you know, HIV is an immune def- deficiency. This is not. This is a bacterium. It's a, path- a pathogen, but it's a setup agent. So, um, you, you know, you, Joe is 32 years old, and you heard he died of pneumonia. And you go, my God, you know, Joe's 32 years old. How does a 32-year-old guy die of pneumonia? Oh, well, you know, he had AIDS, he had HIV, and compromised his immune system, and he got pneumonia and died. Okay. Very similar to what's happening with sheep. As, as Scott had pointed out, that the uh, mycoplasma pneumonia or emo- lays down the cilia in the esophagus uh, and allows other other bugs other pathogens other 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 bacteria to get down into the lungs they can't cough it out the cilia is not moving it out they get sick and then we you know what we used to just say is well they died of pneumonia well actually they probably died of something else but imovi is as we're able to study it more and more and more imovi was present there's there's a litany of other pathogens uh manheimia hemolytica there's there's new research that uh is looking at um uh, nasal tumors is you know, so it's you know these these sheep which which a mountain sheep when you look at where they live uh in some of the harshest climates in north america uh, some of the most unique climates in North America. Uh, the sad thing is, is from a from a respiratory standpoint, they're pretty darn weak. Um, our vice president of conservation, Kevin Hurley, says it. I think pretty pretty succinctly. He says the damn things are born looking for a place to die. Um, so they're you know it's it's a it's it's challenging. Um, it is a disease complex, and, and every time we, uh, we, you know, Wild Sheep Foundation has spent millions and millions of dollars into disease research. We endow a chair of wild sheep disease at Washington State University. Um, every rock we overturn that we think we've got the solution, we, ah, this, is, this is it. This is now, oh, there's four other rocks underneath it that we, un, un, you know, unturn or overturn those and there's four more other questions that we don't know the answer to so i want to explore the timeline a little bit on on the numbers collapsing but no one really knew where we started no one had done like this exhaustive analysis of where sheep exist and how many there were but it's just like any anyone who's paying attention can't miss the fact that they're vanishing at what point do, do people like this organization or other individuals or state agencies at what point do people go like, wow, we need to like get on top of this and start taking some step? And at that time, did they, were they then aware of what was causing the problem? Or were people doing restoration and then all the sheep die again without even knowing that the real issue was disease, thinking that it might have been something else? Is that, is that, does that question make sense? It, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah, that's and, a good and, question. And, and Clay and, and Scott can dream in, but you know, we, were, we were probably putting sick sheep into clean sheep, so we were, we were making some errors back just then. Of, we, just, just, we just didn't know. No one you knew know, we, we, were, you know, we didn't know that, that that source herd had mycoplasma ovo pneumonia. Uh, and so we plopped in, no doubt, in, in transplants, we prop, plopped in sick sheep on top of clean sheep. So that became the, like, like, that became the primary restoration tool was transplanting sheep. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The early years was protection. Every state, 1905, 1910, 1903, every state implemented something. Uh, the first translocation occurred in 1922. Uh, 
since then, there have been probably uh, close to 1,500 separate operations uh, removing somewhere in the neighborhood of 22,000 animals uh, that have been moved. Going from, back from to, one place to another. One place to another. So and, in 1903 in Texas, they're like, it's bad enough you can't kill one. And it wasn't just cheap. Keep that in mind. It was mule deer and pronghorn and, and all wildlife in those days. I mean, everything was suffering. Yeah. But, uh, but it was. It, there's no doubt about it. The, the, the tool, translocations, was, that was the tool. Uh, you know, we would go, we worked with, uh, Nevada Department of Wildlife and we would, we would trap sheep on the landscape. I would be on the side of a mountain. We would trap sheep. Uh, we had a trailer, double decker trailer, fill that trailer full as many as, the, uh, many sheep as they would give us. And then as fast as we could get you, back you give to them Texas, a turkey. give them a handful of turkeys. <laughs> and, and, uh, no, no, uh, <laughs> Yeah, give them what whatever it was they wanted because we were beggars. That was the bottom line. We yeah, were beggars joking, at that man. time. So, so anyway, go back to Texas and twenty four hours later, dumping them on the landscape. Well, we were drawing blood samples, but we would never wait for the results of those samples. Uh, so, if something would have happened, the cat would have been out out of the bag by then. Yeah. So now, now we we sample source and recipient populations in advance. And we look at those kind of things. So we're a lot smarter in the way we do business. That's a horrible thought to think of just out of, out of in a very excusable form of ignorance to spend that time and energy. Oh, there's no doubt. And, we and, did and going ourselves. and infect a clean herd. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. Because if you look at in, in, uh, the, the, the disease itself, it, you know, the, it, it can only come from a live animal. And there's, there's no doubt about it. Now, that can be domestic sheep, domestic goats, but it can also be bighorn sheep, and it can also be uh, wild goats. Uh, so that, that bacteria doesn't do well laying on the dirt. No, it does not. It, does, it, has to, it comes from a live source. So, but we've, uh, again... You, you, how, how close? Like, I, let's, talk about tran- let's talk about the transmission for a minute. I don't know whether... Uh, I'm, I'm going to let it's Scott... a little bit of a rabbit hole, but yeah. we can... Yeah, because it's not well we understood. I'm just talking about like, okay, you got a sick. Let's not even bring in yeah, domestic they sheep. They don't in. have to touch noses. Let's okay. just put it. Exactly. Let's not they even bring be, domestic sheep. But two two have, big horns. If the pens are too close together, they you know WSU has a, a captive herd and they got them. I think one of the early trials they got a little too close to their clean sheep from the sick sheep. We're talking inches or feet or yards. Feet, yards. You're talking yeah. about in in some cases maybe kilometers. Uh, well, okay. Long, long then, if that's the case, then what do you mean then? Like, what do you mean it has to go from sheep to sheep? Because it's just airborne? aerosol. Yeah. Well, oh, if it, let's that's let's the, go back to the if if you look at the at the issues associated with this disease. I mean, when it, when when it comes down to it, all all wildlife they adapt to the various pathogens that they're introduced to okay. in, in some form or fashion, and so how it affects bighorn sheep is. You either have a complete die-off. I mean, they just do terrible. Uh, or you see it where, you know, a mother will pass down antibodies to, to lambs. And, and at first, you know, when you, when you see them, uh, the first few weeks of life, they seem to do pretty well. But about eight weeks, eight to 12 weeks, uh, something like that, then, then you start seeing issues. And then you have complete lamb die-off. So, so in other words, 
you have complete die-offs, then you have no recruitment for decades. And then the other part of that is that you have some sheep that, for whatever reason, they don't die, and they go from herd to herd, from this one to the that Typhoid one. Mary. Typhoid Mary. They, that so they become a carrier who's not affected. It is a carrier that sheds that disease to other populations. So bighorn sheep move. Yep. They I move, mean, and the other thing is they are long-lived species, generally in the absence of disease. You know, ewes can live close to 20 years, and rams are, you know, kind of the 10 to 12 is a long, long-lived ram. So some of these particular carriers can be alive for a long time, moving around and keeping that disease in the herd and it's not able to fade out. How much do you guys see, uh, how, how much have you seen bighorns move? A long ways. Not like, ways. The, yeah, don't give me the, no, I'm always interested in the crazy number, but give okay. me the normal so number. The, no, the normal number. And then, so, I, then hit me with a crazy number. Okay, so the, the, the number that we're using based on sort of this estimation from telemetry data that was sort of a published a model that we use for sort of risk of contact modeling. So how likely are bighorn sheep going to go out in the landscape and contact a particular distance from their home range, right? So all animals set up a home range. Generally, bighorn sheep do exploratory movements where they leave their home range and then may return. So whether it's to see what's going on on the next ridge or to look for receptive views, but generally the the number there is 35 kilometers. So basically 95% of RAM movements over a 14-year data set showed that almost, you know, 95% of those movements were within 35 kilometers from their home range. How, how big is his core zone? It, that varies. It could be it could be large or it could be it could be tight. It just depends it, on the habitat, habitat and yeah. the particular individual. So some individuals may have small home ranges, some might have larger. So the the crazy number is a little uh, a ram that came out of the Lostine herd just this past couple of years. And where, he, where is that? Uh, near Joseph, Oregon, okay. Enterprise and Joseph, yep. up in the Wallowa Range. Yeah, I, know, I know that area. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So he took a little walk, and he went on a loop. So they were they collared him. He showed up, I think, on somebody's deck, and was just taking. And he they, they took a good photo, and they recognized sent him to the Hell's Canyon Initiative folks, and they recognized him as. 12 lo 27 hey that's a we ear tagged him as a lamb so they knew they had a definitive age on him and he went across the snake river the salmon river and then over into the Clearwater drainage in idaho and they put a collar on him at some point they actually put three collars on him because they kept failing him. so he got caught two or three times with a helicopter and i think he got darted once so and he made a 378 mile loop through seven different home ranges of bighorns and he was out in some wheat fields and cross a bunch of highways and so he went 125 miles from his home range and covered in that year and a half time or so with the collar he covered 378 miles and then died on a remote point in hell's canyon natural causes presumably yeah that was during i think it was during the winter so they would couldn't get in there with any other way besides a jet boat so i don't i remember how long it was when the collar went on mortality until they went and recovered it so he just went on a cruise he was just like yeah yeah so i mean it kind of just demonstrates the behavior potential of these animals that some of them are going to move and they show up in town you know when, when you're when you have a civilization at the bottom of a nice canyon that joins up to another big canyon they're going to come through and it happens pretty regularly Right, Especially so this, in that in that landscape of Hell's Canyon, Lower Hell's Canyon. Yeah, so this brings up like that brings up a big question. So how we haven't really set up like what needs to happen here if we know what needs to happen. But if they're gonna go do that, 
how do you ever protect them from picking up transmittable diseases and spreading them to everybody else? Right. That's the million-dollar question. Well, and Steve, the protocol of many Western states is when a bighorn sheep comes in contact with domestic sheep, that bighorn sheep is shot. So that's, that's a standing, acting protocol because the fear is that that bighorn could then be the, you know, the vector. And, and as, as you know, this, this damn ram did, I mean, goes on a walkabout and, and could have gone through a whole bunch of herds. So, you know, kind of now so the standard be, protocol is would yeah. be the, the, if administrative that, removal. Yeah. yeah. You would kill, yeah. like, a state agency would kill that would ram. Would kill that ram. And they're, try, they're trying to get away from that where possible. So that this, this, the setup I was talking about where some animals will show up and say, at the t- you know, a town along the Snake River where there's bighorn habitat on all sides. And they show up in town, and you know, generally the the old method was let's just let's remove this animal so it can't go back and and they're removing it for the express purpose to protect the rest of the sheep. It could have picked up pneumonia. It could have made contact, especially if it was seen. Obviously, the ones that are documented in a pasture with domestic sheep or domestic goats, you know, most of the time. Or, but what they're trying to do now is based on the proximity to WSU, is that try to put you know dart the animal live capture it then hold and test or else take it to the wsa wsu uh, facility and that becomes a research animal basically i'd like to this this was like my big aha moment when i came here right i was sitting with our biologist across the hall and and he just kind of said it like it was just something that oh it just happens and i'm like so you're telling me i could go get a grazing permit for my domestic sheep go into public land and then that wild sheep comes down and boom they shoot it is that can that go on yeah and it does you know so we see in the breaks um a couple years ago there was two young rams they went within three quarters of a mile of a domestic sheep herd boom they were shot by state yep yep because of them being a vector yep so what's like what's your do you guys have a st- official stance on the practice? Like, is there an alternative to that? I mean, just to that part of it right there. No, we, 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 you know, our, our, our objective is to keep the two species separate. Okay. So um, if there's known contact, you know, if you can send them off to WSU or send them off to Sabeel in, in Wyoming, great. Um, but, you know, you think about that, that's also a death sentence. Yeah. You know they're going to now be a guinea pig for disease testing. Um, so the you know that there's really not much we can do other than keep the two separated. So you know we circle back to Washington D.C. You know that's what we're advocating for back in Washington D.C. is is federal land managers and agencies to to work for spatial and temporal separation of of wild sheep and domestic sheep. What's that need to look like? I can I can imagine where it becomes contentious oh you bet could you mind like sketching out the obvious and how does that become a contentious conversation well you you know you got i was i was just back there with a with a producer who's who's a this is a domestic sheep producer he's the largest uh public land domestic sheep producer in uh in montana he's a good guy uh and he gets it and he uh he does his best to keep his domestic sheep away from wild sheep um 
and he wants more wild sheep on uh, on Montana's mountains. But you know the the issue is um, litigation. Uh, wild Sheep Foundation is really not a, a, a litigant type organization. We we feel we'd rather sit around a table and 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 work out solutions. So you know our our objective there, Steve, would be to sit down with that producer and go, all right, uh, you know the Western way of doing things is having a whiskey, chatting, acknowledging that there's an issue first and foremost, and then looking for solutions. Is it, is it times of year when, when a producer's trailing through an area? Uh, is, it, is it how he uses or she uses the, uh, the you know, upper allotments or you know, these high mountain allotments? So um, we've, we've done various programs in various states. There's a few states that have very good collaboratives where you have a, a wild sheep and domestic sheep uh, interaction working group. Uh, we don't always agree, but we sit around a table once or twice a year and say, "Let's, you know, let's come up with solutions that we can, uh, we can, we can work this out." Doesn't work everywhere. Um, you know, Wild Sheep Foundation's official position is we want healthy and uh, expanding wild sheep herds. Um, but we also support a vibrant domestic sheep industry. The key is there's often places that are just absolutely incompatible in the same landscape. Um, we have worked with um, permittees to convert. If it's a high-conflict area, you've got a, a large population of bighorn sheep, large population of, of domestic sheep. And we know there's going to be contact. We've worked with some producers to convert them to cattle where appropriate. Uh, there have been situations where we've worked with producers to um, pay them, uh, almost like a CRP program in the Midwest, but pay them to retire their allotment uh, or vacate their allotment. Just to look at, like, what would you make in profits running sheep? And can we take conservation dollars? And we'll pay you to not do it. Yeah, we take private conservation dollars to pay it and not do it. We just so in those uh, cases, you have, you have a willing seller, willing buyer abs- scenario. Absolutely, and we you know we we paid a uh, just because we're these these deals are typically conf- confidential, so I won't even mention the state. But we uh, we paid a producer four hundred twenty seven thousand dollars to vacate uh, their allotment. Um, they were also in getting into trouble with grizzly bears and wolves. Uh, constant, constant problem. So, uh, the expansion of grizzly bears and expansion of, of, of wolves has in some ways benefited bighorn sheep in some states because the permittees want to get, get the hell out of there. And they come to NGOs like Wild Sheep Foundation and say, can you give us a hand? Yeah. And we do. And we do. And we've spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars doing that. And you nailed it on a willing seller, willing buyer deal. But what does it look like? You're talking about big, organized producers, okay, who presumably have kind of like a business sensibility. They have a sense of profit loss. But what about all the people that just have two or three sheep? Excellent question. How do you even know who they are? Excellent question. Because, I mean, I could go, like my brother, he doesn't live in, he lives in formerly Bighorn country. He's got some sheep. He's got 10 acres of irrigated pasture. He's got sheep out there. There's nothing to prevent him from having a buddy come over and say, hey, man, I'd love to have a lamb for my place. Nothing, there's no paperwork. Yeah. Yeah, so the key so there how is, do you even know? The key, key there is education. 
You know, so I mean, on this on this podcast, I mean, we're we're going to be educating people that there's an issue. Um, uh, you, you know, uh, I came from Texas, and I go down to to Houston, and I give a presentation. And I talk. I talk about the disease issue and to a hunting community that you would presume would would know something about it, and it's kind of blank stares and never heard of it. Um, truth be told, I came to Wild Sheep Foundation for Dallas Safari Club. I wasn't aware of it. I'd been in the the hunting and conservation industry for eighteen years. I hadn't heard about it. So it's 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 education. Um, Wild Sheep Foundation obviously respects private landowners. Um, you know, respects private land rights. Uh, and your ability to do what you you want on your land, but um, you know our 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 effort there would be to educate those private landowners or those recreational producers or hobby flocks or whatever you want. 4-H, um, FFA, uh, a lot of 4-H animals out there that could get in trouble. Uh, educate them. Um, I just I just spent two year uh, two uh, days on the Missouri River with a um, private producer in southern BC who gets it. Um, and interesting enough, he's got a small flock of, of domestic sheep. They're actually mouflon sheep, and he's in proximity to bighorn habitat. And he's a part of an interna- interaction working group in southern BC. And he was the guy that asked the question of them. He goes, "Well, why don't I, as a producer?" test my sheep for Imovi. He did, and he's got an Imovi-free flock, and he's now one of our biggest advocates as a domestic sheep producer uh, for Imovi-free flocks. So that would be potentially one of the solutions in the small areas. That's pretty interesting to think about because, I mean, you know, a lot of states have managed to get brucellosis out of livestock herds. You bet. Is, the, is that an area of interest to think that you could expand? Absolutely, the pneumonia-free sheep. Well, they would, you know, they'd be in free sheep. There's a Dr. Tom Besser, who's our Rocky Crate Endowed Chair. He's at Washington State University, probably one of the world's foremost experts on this issue, and and he's advised us that if you have an free domestic flock, that's about a 97 percent solution to this issue. So that that is exciting. Um, but there's a fly in the ointment. You don't say. Scott Scott just talked about that ram that did a three hundred some odd mile walkabout. Yeah, if he's well, infected. So we've got, you know, we we know that um, Imovi is not endemic to bighorn sheep, but Imovi is now resident in bighorn sheep so we have herds in you know we're in montana so we have herds in montana that they test positive for imovi um as scott pointed out there's a variety of strains it's kind of like the you know not, not necessarily but again layman's terms kind of like the flu or the cold you know sometimes you get one hell of a common cold sometimes you get a little light one sometimes you get a flu you know there's a flu virus that you know that just wipes you out uh, other times it's not so bad uh, same thing with you know strains of imovi uh this this bighorn may be able to live with it well, now here's the fly in the ointment. What if we have a private land domestic sheep producer doing the right thing? Spending tons of money the, to do it. Ton, tons of money, testing his or her sheep. They're Imovi-free. They make sure they only bring in stock from Imovi-free. And we get a wandering bighorn that's Imovi-positive. Yeah. Now, we've, now we've switched the, the dynamic there. 
And, you know, the, the, we, the fact is we've got to be intellectually honest and go, we're still back into a separation scenario. Now we're trying to separate, you know, these Imovi-free, clean domestic sheep from a potentially um, infected wild sheep. The truth of the matter, if we, we're going to have to think different. We, we can't continue to do the way we've done in the past. And I, I think there are opportunities that we miss. Um, and, and I want to emphasize the work that was done. Uh, Gray, Gray mentioned private landowners earlier. We restored bighorn sheep in Texas with private landowners. Because uh, you, didn't, you didn't have a choice there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we figured out a way to do this together. And these, these are people who care. And, and our goal is certainly not to put people out of business. Uh, it, to, to me, the way we do this is we figure out new solutions, better way of doing business. We sit down at the same table. We don't play the politics. We, we, we stop denying that the disease exists. It's, it's real. You asked me a question or asked us all a question earlier. Didn't you have any ideas? You watched those numbers decline. Everybody had a, thought they had a pretty good idea why it just never was demonstrated or proven. And, and later on, that information came in a controlled experiment and where we, where we knew that it, that it did occur. And then the question became, well, that didn't really occur in the wild. Uh, you guys did that in a controlled setting. It really doesn't occur in the wild. It does. So the, the first, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that we've got a problem. And then we start working together. And, and Grace says it best. He talks about, you know, it's okay to have both on the landscape. They just can't be at the, there at the same time at the same place. And so we have to figure out what that, what that does look like. Uh, but we are going to have to think outside the box. How, how, uh, you know, how do, how do we do things? Uh, is it, I, I, I know and, and, and probably will suck the air out of this room, but we allow private landowners in Texas to benefit from sheep tags. There's an incentive there uh, for landowners to work with us, and it's worked extremely well. Um, landowners are willing to do whatever it takes. We conduct, we uh, landowners allow public hunters on their property to hunt. Uh, we hunt each other's property. We we do research. We capture sheep on private land. So there there are lots of other examples. That's like, just one. Like in that model, you're going for a thing where you're trying to change the landowner perception of what it means to have sheep. Well, exactly. That it's not just like, you're screwed now, buddy. There's a sheep on your property. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you'll never, as a private landowner or a producer, why would I care if there were sheep, bighorn sheep around here if I saw no benefit from that? Yeah. And so I think there are opportunities that we haven't explored that we need to. We need to sit down in the t- at the same table, work through some of these issues, but, but we can't do that if we don't acknowledge that the disease exists, and if, if every time something major happens or, or an obstacle comes up, a, a stumbling block, we run straight to D.C. Are there, uh, are there pneumonia deniers? Oh, absolutely. Really? That seems to be a common theme across a handful of wildlife right, diseases. Right, CWD deniers have come yeah. on full absolutely. recently. Well, there's deniers and then there's users of it. You know, we've seen it used as a leveraging tool when we, they know that we'll pay to play. Gotcha. You know, they'll say, hey, you know, hey, we're going to bring in some domestics in here. What do you all think of that? Right. <laughs> or, you know, there's a guy in, in, in Gardner somewhere. Um, he got pissed. He lost his grazing allotments and said, all right, and brought in domestic sheep. Well, we lost 43 sheep that winter. 
just because he was like, well, I'll show we, you. We had, a, we had a guy down in Wyoming that uh, he was basically a cattle producer, but he had he had cattle allotments up to 11,000 feet in the mountains in, the, in, in prime, prime bighorn habitat. And he had, he was you know not not the not the best grazer in the world, and he'd gotten in trouble with the BLM constantly, and he lost his BLM cattle allotments. He goes, "Fine, I'm going to put domestic sheep on my deeded land up at eleven thousand feet, right in bighorn habitat. Now, what are you going to do?" So you know we. So then know, he's just doing like he's well, just, re- wild, it's just retribution. That's wildlife terrorism. Yeah, that's yeah. wildlife terrorism because he you know he knows. You know, so as, as as Garrett said, you know, you've got you've got people, you you got deniers, and then you got those that'll use it as a, as a weapon. Well, and that that also occurs on just the different public lands issues. Uh, there there are some who would use use the grazing part of it as as or the anti grazing part of it, uh, bring br- bighorns into that just just to lay that on the table. In other words. Uh, it's all about where it might be about public land grazing. That's not what we're about either. It has nothing to do with that. Our, our, I don't follow what you're saying. Well, one of the one of the public land guys can say it, say it better. There are we have uh, there are some groups who would use bighorn sheep to say that gotcha. we don't want any grazing on public land. So let's use bighorn sheep to accomplish that. So, so someone who had an agenda where they felt like they weren't so much pro bighorn as they were. Anti-grazing on public lands, exactly. and they'd be like, "This would be a great place for some bighorns." Exactly, because I know that I can, that I'll be able to manipulate right. that into achieving my other goal. And that, that's not that's not our mission. Our our mission is is simple. We put and keep sheep on the mountain, and and if we're going to do this, we're going to have to do it together with livestock producers. And I think there's some really good examples out there where of people working together. Uh, well, I think that the the key, like you know, I've met with and have spoken with a lot of very effective players in the conservation space, people like the, the people in this room in this organization who have a long track record. And the, the, the thing that I find that these groups are in is you're in the middle and you got some crazies off to each side and you're trying to guide, right? You're, you're trying to keep this thing moving along with some pretty radical fringe elements probably barking at you from both sides. Absolutely. You know, and, and then I think you know, going back to, he just keeps preaching education and it's huge, huge. You know, I've worked with, uh, spoke with your buddy Ryan Callahan a lot. Like mm-hmm. you talk to these companies who one of their biggest things is wool, you know, and they're always preaching that they're selling great wool products. Well, where do you get it? Yeah. You know, you, you have some people that are, they get from New Zealand, I think. They do. And yeah. so they're safe, right? Same with Sitka. They're safe, you know, so talking with Sitka and First Light and being like, hey guys, you guys want to talk about where you get your wool from or maybe where you shouldn't. You have some groups that say we're, we're yeah. environmentally friendly, you know, because we source our wool here locally and there's not these shipping things and all that. And then you go, well, where do you get it? And they go, oh, Colorado. And you go, oh. So you're just killing, you know, I sat next to, Yvonne Chouinard up on stage talking about how, yeah, if you're sourcing your wool west of the Mississippi, you're probably contributing to the die-off of bighorn sheep. And that got an interesting... I mean, Yeah, that's a bold, yeah, it's a bold statement, man. Yeah, well, I mean, you know... And it's, or like, not, not, I should say a bold statement, but a statement that people could read into pretty heavily. Yeah, it, well, and, you know, I, I probably should have followed it up more, but people just don't understand... And a lot of times these people building the garments don't understand talking with, you know, Ryan Callahan is a very educated dude when it comes to conservation. And a lot of these things he did ha- had no idea about. So, so if we huge. talk about, if we look at this, like the separation thing, 
the separation idea. Um, well, well, first, I want to address something you just brought up. Is there, do you guys have a, is there like a, is there a, the, the equivalent of like labeling something organic or labeling a, uh, an organization to be of a certain pedigree of 401k nonprofit? Like, is there, do you guys have a way where you like are certifying or, or giving a stamp of approval to certain producers for practicing? No. We, we looked into it. Yeah. You did, we, yeah. we had a, we had a, um, you know, kind of a, a, a wild sheep safe uh, campaign. And it, it's the challenge with that, Steve, is it did get into a certification process. And we didn't have the staff. Um, and, and you know, then we, we talked to our attorneys and they went, oh, man, you certify one and not a, you know. So, yeah. We kind of backed away from that on the wild sheep safe, and and it's and it's it's almost like Scott had said on you know what is effective separation, what is the distance? That's a, yeah, I do so want to talk about that separation. You know, yeah, a it's bit. a real it's a real challenge there. And but so, like in, in Puget Sound, there's a thing. There's like a type of building that's like oh, what they call it salmon safe or salmon sure, country sure, or something. And so, a building can and a building can comply in a certain way and has to do with the quality of their runoff. Well, right? so, that has to do with that you've achieved some threshold, some bet. measurable threshold of, of acknowledgement that this water is you, going to be used by sand. And this is this is what Garrett touched on. And so we're, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of looking at a, a concept of conflict free lamb and wool. Um, and we're still fleshing that out. I mean, there's responsible wool standards mm-hmm. uh, that the wool industry uses. Interesting enough, I've read through most of the organizations that have responsible wool standards. It's more animal husbandry. It's um, you know, it, it's transportation. It's predator control. Whether or not there's some predator control going on in your area, they may think that's non-friendly. But they're not concerned about they, wildlife. They, nothing in there talks about bighorn sheep. So. It's so it's more like animal rights issues than wildlife issues. You yeah. bet. So yeah. we're you know we're reaching out to some of those more environmental groups to say, hey, if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna run down this path, you better put bighorns in the picture. Uh, but as we as we mature, you know, this conflict free space, um, it it too is more of an education program. I mean, we'll we will probably never be able to have completely conflict-free scenarios in the western united states unless you put the the wool industry and the lamb industry out of business and that's not our objective i mean that's just not our objective well, so, well, so let the me, key let me is ask this about, about that question let me ask this does does the wool and lamb industry in the west absolutely rely on public land grazing no okay no so, so there's, six, there's a version about of 60 to 70 families and that's the, but bighorns the, probably rely on private land. Uh, no, more bighorns are on public land, even in the wintertime. Uh, yeah, still, yeah, yeah still. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a, it's seventy to eighty percent of the time they're spending on public land. Okay. So, so there is a you know there is a public land grazing scenario, and and, and it just it just varies on states. Montana, it's not the it's not really the issue. Public land grazing is not the issue. It's more education of of private recreational herds, uh, or you know, or producers. Um, Colorado is probably the ground zero for the public land grazing issue. 
uh, with a lot of conflict zones. The BLM and the Forest Service have risk of contact maps. Um, you can look at a map and it'll show uh, active domestic sheep uh, grazing allotments, um, occupied bighorn range, um, and active BLM allotments, and then red conflict zones. So they're mapped out. I mean, we, you know, there's, there's risk of contact analysis that's, that's going on. The bottom line is we pretty much know where the, the, the touch points and the hot points are. Um, you know, one of the solutions that we're looking at is what if we, what if we took the top 10 hot points and take, pick a state, Colorado? What if we took the top 10 hot points that, man, we've got, you know, real critical core bighorn herds in there in that area, and we've got some pretty significant conflict zones. What if we address those first? You know, it's, it's eating the elephant one bite at a time. I yep. mean, it's, it's a huge issue. It's a huge problem. Um, you know, the disease issue is complex. We, we, you know, we don't have all the answers. But what if we could, you know, incrementally... Um, you know, 10% at a time start addressing those issues with a variety of tools. Some of them are going to be bottom line moving a producer out of that area. And, but the key there is can we find that producer other grass to graze? Um, you know, are there private land areas? Are there, are there, you know, are there tools that we haven't used yet? You know, can, can the, the wild sheep advocacy community um, you know, if we're not going to buy you out, can we incentivize you to go on to some lower elevation pivot point, you know, some alfalfa field or some other grass field that you can utilize instead of high mountain summertime allotments where bighorn sheep are grazing? Yeah, I got so, you. you know, we just got We got to get clever. And, and Clay said it. And we, we've got we, we've got a program that we call our new narrative. But, the, you know, the, the, the premise is we've been doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result. It's time to change that. You know, we all know that's called insanity if you expect a different result. So we're, we're uh, you know, we're, we want to sit down with, with willing producers who are progressive and get it and don't deny that there's an issue. And sit down and say, hey, you know, you want to you wanna, uh, keep your family in business, and it's a part of the Western landscape. We respect that. You know, as a multiple-use advocacy organization, which is what Wild Sheep Foundation is, we respect that. Uh, but let's, let's not do the same thing over and over and expect a different result. Let's, let's do different things and get different results. It, and something Gray says a lot, too, that, you know, there's those that sue and those that do. Um, and we're <laughs> kind of like... That first group that knocks on the door, and when we get denied, then we go, all right, well, when they knock on the door, it's probably not going to be as pretty. Yeah. You know, so we're kind of like that, just right at the beginning saying, hey, let's let's work things out, and then when we leave, if we get denied, you know, and there's there's unfortunate reality that other groups just come in and they're going to sue them. Yeah. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. You had a comment? Oh. It kind of got a little bit lost in there, but it's I'll just chime in with the tribe's perspective on some of this, and, and it's really tied to public land grazing. And so the, the, the tribes I work for have a treaty reserve right to harvest bighorn sheep. And that, that's a deal with the federal government. It's a, the trust responsibility of the, of the federal government, and they are, at this time, permitting through a federal action uh, grazing of domestic sheep that adds, knowingly adds risk to our populations of sheep, bighorns. So they, we just basically can't accept that because we really can't quantify the risk. So, we can quantify uh, uh, a minimum risk. I want you to say it a little more clearly. You're saying the tribe has a deal with the federal government that they can hunt bighorns, mm-hmm. but it's reserved in their Treaty of 1855. And too. they're a, and they're able to argue that the federal government, by giving the grazing allotments to domestic sheep, is hindering their treaty right. 
if we are knowing, if we are knowingly adding risk to population viability. And I think we can demonstrate that with the science. It's like coming you know? through a back door to, yep. to grazing grazing domestic sheep on you know suitable and prime bighorn habitat is very problematic for us. And that and that, that that's just the the nature of it. And I mean, yes, we we are you know not against public land grazing, but we just need to take a make a hard take a hard look at where where's suitable to graze domestic sheep and where's not. And we need to protect the sheep we have, but we have to look at how are we going to expand our sheep populations. If we have allotments that are stocked with domestic sheep in historic and prime bighorn habitat that could would be suitable otherwise, we got to think about that. So do you does does your or when you're working for the tribe mm-hmm. as a biologist, do you wind up interfacing with these guys at Wild Sheep Foundation? Mm-hmm. Are you in communication? Yeah. Yeah. What are the conversations that you guys have? Private. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's always a good it's always a great discussion because this is a tr- it's a tough it's a tough tough question you know. I well, mean, you guys are coming at it from the same side of the thing, or you want what's best for bighorns? We do. That's and that's the we just have it. The tribe has a very different worldview of that, right? Yeah, no, I understand. Yep, that was something that was taken away, and. It's still a cultural memory. It's there. They they want to be fully fully be able to fully exercise that. And a couple of tags is is not sufficient. We do coordinate uh, with the states for for uh, on issuing bighorn sheep tags, and so that's a little bit of a sore point. So we really need to figure out how we can move the needle and and, and get sheep back where they belong. Yeah. So how does that work when they're on Indian reservation land? Then they're technically owned by. Well, we don't have bighorn sheep on the reservation. We have a relatively small reservation. Um, but you have hunting rights offside the reservation. We do yeah. on about four different herds of sheep, and so we work with the states and and figure out a tag allocation allotment, and, and we issue we hold a drawing, just kind of similar to the state drawing. And they'd like to see more bighorn tags. Oh yeah. Which means they need more to see more bighorns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Are you guys? Uh, I know you can't really answer this, but I'm just gonna throw it out there anyway. <laughs> optimistic or pessimistic about bighorns? I mean, a lot of like good work's been done, right, man? I mean, we were down to twenty five thousand. We're up to what? Eighty five. Eighty five thousand. What's a livable number for you? You know that's that is the tough one. Is is where do we want to go? Um, and I, I guess the best way for us to express that is we would like to see bighorn sheep everywhere they are now suitable. The problem is, okay. Steve, um, you know, suitable. What does that mean? Where they're safe? Um, it's tough to find places to translocate bighorn sheep that they're not going to get into trouble. The trouble um, being just this trouble, disease. trouble, trouble running into a domestic domestic herd. Like so that so is, is that really that like is that's the, the obstacle number one inhibiting factor on restoration of bighorn sheep is is contact with domestic sheep and goats. So the is, number is it one. fair to say, like if it wasn't for the disease, not blame blame whoever, but if it, if the disease for whatever reason didn't exist, is it fair to say that we might have a million? Bighorns or five hundred thousand bighorns in the country. Well, we certainly have more than eighty-five thousand, and you'd probably easily say probably double that and maybe triple that. I mean, we've we've quad, you know, we've we've 
had a threefold increase since the late 60s, 70s, and I think we could have another threefold increase. Uh, but right now, there's it's tough to find. Um, as, as, as Scott's saying, you know, 35 kilometers. I mean, we're sitting in my office, and there's a, a, a Montana Unlimited Bighorn Ram that I saw on winter range, and I took him 30 miles away. So that's not 30 kilometers. That's 30 miles away. You got an unlimited sheep? I did. That's, really? That's an unlimited sheep. That's a big unlimited sheep. It's a 13-and-a-half-year-old unlimited sheep. like to kill me. Hold on a minute. You found, you, you found that same ram 30 miles from where we, you got him? We found that same ram. You know, a, a blind hog can find an acorn every once in a while. That's a big unlimited yeah, unit it, ram. It's unbelievable. Yeah, that, that's the exact. I, on, my, on the front of my door, I have the live picture of that ram. I had, I had a photograph in, in winter range of that ram on my desktop on my MacBook for nine months, and we found three rams in a different unit, and one of them was that guy. One of them was bigger. That's the nice thing about sheep is you can really, because they don't lose, right? They got a horn. They don't lose. You can, got, you can keep an eye He's got three chunks of character. Now, you know, I, I, need, to, I need to preface in, in, in case, you know, your audience thinks I'm a great sheep hunter. Uh, I had a great sheep hunter with me. I actually had Kevin Hurley, our, our conservation director, now our vice president of conservation. He was, our, he was kind of our camp jack, and I, I had the ace in a hole, Jack Ashton Jr., who I think has sheep blood running through his veins was with me. So he and I, he and I backpacked up in, and, and we found the rim. And in Montana, liked, you got to get sheep. out of there in forty-eight hours. You've got to present a a full head and cape uh, within forty-eight hours to game and fish or fish, wildlife, and parks. And we got we got to the biologist in forty-eight. After a bivouac and a lot of hoofing, ah, uh, just just all the things you love. Huh. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But the the point I realize the point you were making is just the distance is covered. Yeah, that ram that ram covered thirty miles, and that was just standard for that ram. And, he, he, and he, he didn't do it by going in a straight line. No, no. Now the good news is in in that unlimited area, there's there's no more domestic sheep. Is that right? Yeah. So I mean, you know that that and and the the, the that was in the Stillwaters Unit five hundred, and and those sheep are relatively clean. Um, and, and relatively hardy, but they still have some resident pathogens in them. But they're, they're, they're living with it. The problem is you then bring domestic sheep back in there and they bring in another strain of Mivovi, and that's, that's, the, that's the ticker. That's the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, and then you, you, then you get a die-off again. So let me hit with this question. Now that we've kind of like prodded around what the future might look like and what's acceptable... Um, do we now, do we right now know that at least it won't get worse? I don't, you know, there, there are some, and, and I didn't answer your first question. Well, I, am, I, I, I told am, you, but you I am, be able, I, I am going to answer Oh, you are going to do it. Okay. Yeah, so I, I gave you out by saying because you can't no, answer Because no, <laughs> there's, there's, you know, there's, there's those within our community that think that status quo is success. Okay. Um, Wild Sheep Foundation, at least from my perspective, is not going to accept status quo. As success, um, we want to come up with some more unique solutions to this problem, and they're they're out there. Um, while I was in Washington D.C., I had uh, had a beer with that domestic sheep producer, and in Nevada, they took a little different tact. They were a bit uh, basically willing to accept more risk, 
Some states would be willing to do that. Others would not. Um, I Scott, I, I don't think that... So, I, I don't so, follow what you mean. So here, here's a scenario. Are, are we willing... Um, if there, if we can, if we can work more on the movie free, um, if we can work with producers on better practices, is our community willing to, let's say in Montana, um, put wild, you know, translocate wild sheep into areas that typically we would not, because we're fearful of that, that uh, the disease transmission, and that's a. Big question we're facing right now. So, like, are you so willing to spend the money on it? Are we willing to spend the money? Are we willing to to not litigate with a producer because that producer didn't object to us moving wild sheep within, for argument's sake, 20, 20 miles of his operation? So you're making, we, you're making a tr- you're making a sort of truce. We're just we're yeah we're we're you know this is this it's a it's a it's a organization wide question it's a community wide question and there's those that agree with it those that disagree with it but would we then set up protocols that you know we know that if that bighorn goes on a walkabout that bighorn's not going to make it or do we use do we use unlimited areas as a way to separate bighorns from domestic sheep are there are there areas and you know this is again a kind of a montana uh unique scenario can we use almost no go zones for for bighorn sheep if a bighorn sheep is in that zone it's unlimited you can take it gotcha. you know we're, we're just trying to think out of the box no, I'm try to you. try to think out of the box again let's get let's get get past this doing the same thing and just fighting over this the good news and i guess why i'm i'm um, optimistic and um, realistic but optimistic is um, we are learning more and more and more on the disease issue. If we can get the domestic sheep industry to spend as much money as we do on disease research that will help their industry because there's some there's some the data that show that you know Imovi is not good for domestic sheep either. Uh, it's it's endemic to them and it's resident to them, uh, but it's not. It's it's uh, you know Besser did one study. I think he was he was looking at the the live weight and and it was like a seven percent increase and then it changed. So I you know probably shouldn't use those numbers, but there was a kind of a significant weight gain uh, change between an Imovi free domestic sheep and a Imovi positive domestic sheep. The Imovi free gained weight quicker. Well, then there's a market incentive. Yeah. So maybe, maybe there's some, you know, something that we can learn there. We're not there yet. Uh, it's, it's, it's unproven. It's not published. It's not peer reviewed. Um, but maybe there's something there, but you know, wouldn't that be cool if we can use market incentives? Uh, to encourage domestic sheep producers to, uh, you know, if they can, um, have Imovi-free sheep, you, you know, like like pretty much eliminating small smallpox. Maybe there is some sort of silver bullet where we can vaccinate domestic sheep, and they're all Imovi-free. I, you know, we got two bright guys in the room, Scott and Clay. You know, I'm just a I'm just a managing guy and a marketing guy, but um, you know, there's some very bright people out there that are working on this issue. Uh, we've got the wildlife vet community working on it. Um, there's not consensus on on what the solution is, but you know what? We haven't cured the common cold yet either, but at yeah, some point we might. But you have an interesting point there about producers being incentivized to get ahead of the problem. And Giannis and I had an interesting conversation one time with 
Wyoming's current governor, Matt Mead, where he was just talking about, we we're talking about sage grouse in the extraction industry. And he was saying the ex- many players in the extraction industry have a very long view and they're very sophisticated. And they know that like for them to be on the ground doing good business, they need to head off problems. And a problem that they have a vested interest in heading off is not letting wildlife get into dire situations where you're going to then invite high-level scrutiny into practices and that what's good for them to operate in their area would be good sage-grouse numbers. And that they can at times be very effective players when they have that long view and not heading into conflict, heading into disaster, courting litigation. Great parallel. But you just have, but again, you have to be in it for the, you have to be looking to the future to, to 10 years profit, right. not tomorrow's profit. Right. right. Yep. It's a really good point. I'm, I'm optimistic. We've made a lot of progress in, in wildlife disease and, you know, disease in our domestic livestock. If you think some of the things we've gotten out of our domestic animals over the, you know, centuries that we've been doing it, I'm, I'm optimistic that we can, if we put the shoulder to this one, I think, I think it can, we can overcome it. I hope. I'm really hopeful. I think the fact that you're, you know, honestly, Steve, you're here. Like, that's a reason to be optimistic because this was something that wasn't really talked about a whole lot. You know, and you get these these guys that have incredible influence on the community, you know, and, and understanding really what we're up against. You know, imagine this issue flipped onto the elk population. Oh, be you know, it'd be a different, a totally different story. Yeah. And why? Because, you know, North American model is a huge success largely because of opportunity to hunt, you know, relatively low opportunity to hunt wild sheep, relatively low funding for conservation. That's where we come in. If it was elk on the same landscape, man, this wouldn't even be a discussion. You know, could you imagine if 20 bull elk came down into a domestic sheep herd and they mowed down those 20 bull elk just because they came in contact with them? Yeah, no be way. There'd be different conversations. No way. And so the almost what makes them so aspirational, like you know, you know, it's so difficult to get a tag. It's so difficult to get to their habitat. The things that make them so aspirational can also impede them on making them relatable to our everyday lives and understanding what's going on. If we see a die off of fourteen thousand feet, we don't really take heed to it, and it's not something that impacts our freezer. We don't think it does. But we talk about wild sheep being one point five million. You know almost double what elk are today imagine if they were imagine if it was something that you just you know you went down to bob wards and bought yourself a tag and went went sheep hunting yeah like you have a lot more advocates that's an interesting point that callahan brought up after being at the sheep show was he was like he's kind of marveling at the amount of people that are, are spending so much time so much money so much energy getting behind sheep conservation and he's like the thing of it is most of those guys are never going to draw a sheep tag. They're just doing it, they for, the idea, it. for the idea. You know, something They're they do. For the idea of it. A lot of these, a lot of the chapters that they do, it's pretty fun. You know, you sit down at the banquet and they say, all right, stand up if you've taken a sheep. And it's like maybe a fifth of the room. Yeah. But people are going to spend thousands of dollars every night because they just believe in it. It's just out of their grasp, but they believe in it enough. You know, it's just this aspirational thing that we almost can't can't imagine going after. I, w- I would say that we have the most altruistic 
um, membership in our community. I mean, we've got 7,200 members. Steve, last year we put $4.6 million into wild sheep conservation. Is that right? $4.6 million, $18.1 million in the last four years. With a little small 68 to 7,200 member organization. Um, Clay worked on a project um, a couple years ago, and we were, we were looking at it, and it's kind of switching gears a little bit, but it, it looks at the auction tags. Um, and those are a little controversial. Oh, we spend tons of time giving yeah. both sides of that yeah, argument. Yeah, those are a little controversial. I see both sides of that you, argument you bet. with crystal clarity. Jump but, but you, but right you, you look, let me, let me, let me <laughs> give you, let me give you some <laughs> facts when it comes to wild sheep constitution. Please, please. 74% Can I first of, explain what you're talking about? Yeah, please do. All right, we've talked about this a thousand times. People always ask us about this. But um, when you have, I'm speaking for the listeners right now, when you have a resource that isn't large enough to meet the demand on the resource, you have to find a way. And I'm talking about a wild game resource. You have to find a way to allocate opportunity, right? And so if you live in the great state of Michigan or Wisconsin and you want to go deer hunting, there's enough deer to go around. Everybody goes down. You buy a deer tag. Everybody gets to go. With a lot of wildlife species, there's just the numbers aren't there. And so everyone throws their name in a hat and it's meant, you know, I shouldn't say meant to be, but traditionally those opportunities are allocated democratically. An exception to that case would be what you're going to now explain, um, which would be when they take tags, usually for very coveted species or coveted hunting areas, and they take tags and sell them to a highest bidder. And here's the rub. Here's the thing you got to pay attention to. And it's usually structured in such a way that like 90% of the money goes into the ground for restoration work. So it's not lying in someone's pocket. And this is tightly, this is carefully watched. This is a carefully watched flow of money. So you bet. With so, that little bit so, of bad, because a lot of people don't a, know what we're talking a, about. It's, so. it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great setup, and, and, I, and I, if, if, if I could expand on it. You know, I, um, Shane Mahoney's a, a great friend, and he and I give talks around, you know, the world, and, and he was listening to some of my talks on this, this tag thing that we're going to talk about, the special permits and tags, you know, where, exactly what you said, where, you know, one or two or five um, – Special licenses are taken from the pool of available tags and sold to the high bidder. And I used to call that a bastardization of the North American conservation model. You used to. I support it. I never even went that far. But I called it a bastardization. And I, I, I had Shane, uh, Shane Mahoney down in my drift boat. We're floating down the Yellowstone River and, and we're you know, probably enjoying a beer, in, in Shane's case, a Guinness. And he was just having a good time. He goes, "Gray, I want to, I want to." Can, can you say it the way? Can you use his accent? No, <laughs> I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get the voice of God, <laughs> Mr. Shane Mahoney. There you go, great yeah, guy, absolute fabulous conservation. But he, you know, he says, you know, Gray, you know, I've I've listened to you say this a number of times in a number of places that you know this 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 special ter- permit and tag and it could also be a raffle tag and we'll get into that but this special permit and tag is a bastardization of the north american model he's saying to you i've heard you i've say heard it. me say this and okay, i yeah. and i talk i you you know and i even use capitalism socialism kind of our 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 standard system is an egalitarian program and, is, and 
you know, Steve, as you put it, I mean, anyone can go down and get attacked. Um, when it comes to some of the coveted ones, where it's a whether it's a bighorn sheep or a stone sheep or a desert sheep or or a a Rocky Mountain elk in a particular unit in Utah, um, you can auction off those tags too. So now that's that's not egalitarian. That's I want to interrupt to the throw a piece field. of color in. I apply for a bighorn sheep tag every year in six or seven states. Good for you. And the, in this state in particular, for 13, no, 15 or 16 years in a row, and I haven't gotten one. Just right. to give a sense of like what we're talking about when we talk about the slim pickings. You got, you the got. The slim pickings on tags. You got guys in Montana that have been applied for 35 years yeah. and have not drawn a tag. So, you know, you're either lucky. Um, or you go into a jurisdiction like Montana that has the unlimited use, yep. but you know we had a three, three to four percent success. But so, so we're on on the river, and Shane goes, you know, Gray, and he is, you know, he and Valor's guys are the probably the, the the foremost authority on the North American model. He says you're actually wrong. It's not a bastardization of the North American model. The North North American model also is one of its seven pillars, gives the state the opportunity to decide how it funds wildlife conservation in that state and so a state that decides like montana that we will take out of the pool of bighorn sheep permits one auction tag and one raffle tag and the key there is one goes to the the you know the 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 high bidder and the the very affluent one out of a couple hundred but uh, yeah well, yeah i think we have 150 tags or so so you know one goes as a as an auction tag and one also is a raffle tag that you know so us regular folks can you know buy a raffle ticket and potentially have a little better odds than you know than the you know you've been in for 13 14 and some people 35 years so here's the interesting thing when it comes to wild sheep and and clay Clay led this study with a with an intern. Seventy four percent, and I'll say that again: seventy four percent of WAFWA, Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, the Western agencies in United States and Canada, seventy four percent of their wild sheep conservation agency dollars comes from either an auction or a raffle tag. Is that right? Seventy four percent. Now, so you're we peeling. Tr- a, you're peeling. Like let's say two tags out of a hundred plus tags, right. and those two provide seventy four percent in a state like Arizona. It's about ninety five percent. Is that right? And the other thing that was interesting in this in this research, and we we used WAFWA data, forty um, percent of all WAFWA wild sheep conservation agency dollars comes from one organization and that's the wild sheep foundation really yeah so you know we have a we have a very relatively small footprint when it comes to membership at 7200 we cast a very very long shadow when it comes to conservation and putting money on the ground um but you know there's there's sensibilities wyoming gives five tags away on on auction um, if if Wild Sheep Foundation went to Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks and the commission and advocated for another auction tag, our building would be burned down. So, you know, it is controversial, it's, but, but, you know... It, but check this out, man. I, I put it to my brother, or I, another guy put it to my brother in a conversation. And my brother, like, there's nothing he likes more than just, like, wrestling with ethical questions. So they put the governor thing to him, and he was saying that he, he feels uh, on auction tags... He feels that in balancing the morality of it or in balancing the ethics of it, you need to look at 
what are the impacts of the auction tag? Because the auction tag is going to remove an animal from the landscape. But the money, if well spent, is probably going to add a higher number of tags to the general pool by the habitat work and relocation work and putting more sheep on the ground. So that, that money might be pulling a sheep out of the pool and returning four or returning five or returning 10. So there are actually possibly more tags made available thanks to the auction tag than in spite of the auction tag. You, he, he nailed it. You know, we were talking about that unlimited ram. I can assure you, uh, in, in, and we were looking at some data back in 2014. We've changed, we've changed the dynamic in Montana now. Now there's an application fee of 50 bucks. But um, the amount of sheep revenue coming into Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks on, on the unlimited tags and the limited tags was less than $200,000. Okay. And the uh, it, it was actually for- a lot closer to $100,000, around $120,000, $140,000. You can't pay a biologist in, in a truck and, you know, uniforms and like on $140,000. You know, that same year we sold the Montana tag for $315,000. We've sold Man. that tag as high as $480,000. And you pointed it out earlier, 90% of that money goes right back into fish, wildlife, and parks in a dedicated sheep account. So we retain 10%. Well, we spend a hell of a lot more than 10% back in Montana. So 100% of those dollars go right back onto the ground into wild sheep conservation. In Arizona, it's 100%. Wild Sheep Foundation sells that tag. We spend a million dollars to put on a show to get somebody crazy enough to spend $300,000 on a desert sheep. Bighorn sheep tag, and 100% of that dollars goes back to Arizona Game and Fish into a dedicated account to restore bighorn sheep and conserve bighorn sheep. And that, that probably includes some disease spending. Absolutely. Yeah. Same so, you know, thing man, in the I'm like tipping so, more and more every year. Yeah. So I tip more and more in the direction of like, it's just like one of those, it's one of those things you want to be like, yeah, man, I see where you're coming from. I'm not digging. And you might, I'm not even asking you to aesthetically like the auction tags like i'm not asking you to like the aesthetics of it but you it's almost like you cannot argue with the efficacy you know and i i uh, getting back to that unlimited i know that i had as a regular guy you know a nonprofit employee as a regular guy i had the opportunity to buy in effect a bighorn sheep i was living in or in, in wyoming at the time I was able to buy a bighorn sheep tag in Montana for 750 bucks back then, in 2014, as a Wyoming resident and hunt um, bighorn sheep in Montana. And I was able to do that only because some other crazy guy, gal, whatever, had the wherewithal to spend $350,000 on one tag. And that money went to ensure that I had an opportunity to hunt in in montana so i i look at it you know it's it 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 can be unseemly i look at it a little different i look at it as i am grateful that there are people out there that could give money to their alma mater uh they could give money to cancer research and they do uh but there are those that have the wherewithal and they give it to wild sheep restoration and conservation so um instead of vilifying those folks I sell yeah, but we can't measure their motivation. Oh, you you know, I mean, you can't eat horns. I don't, you know, 
I think Steve, the way that I've I've said it, you know, a lot of us like to say hunting is conservation is a term we use a lot. Yeah, and I don't think that there's any better depiction of that, honestly, than those auction tags. When you take one tag out of the whole pool that funds seventy whatever percent of that conservation of that species, you know. It, hunting right there is conservation yeah you, the, the numbers are yeah the numbers are you're struggling with this you're, no i'm not because yeah because here's the thing here's what i like to do i like to take to i like in, in in wrestling with an idea i like to take it to the extreme because one might come in and say well wow man that's a lot of money let's take all the tags and auction yeah, them all right. off because that'd be a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, then we, At which then, point, then we I would the say, well, down. now I feel as though you have, right? So we all agree that there's, like, that's that's not a tenable solution. Right. So we all agree that somewhere in here, there's a line, right? And we're, like, trying to, like, identify the line. Now, to have a state do one, that's pretty damn conservative. Yep. Right? Do you guys have numbers on how much the raffle tag brings in? Um, I don't know if Garrett, you have that. You, you know, it, Montana, it's it's typically a little shy of two hundred thousand dollars. Oh, yeah, but it's significant. I mean, it's significant. You know, and that's, five, that's five bucks a pop, right? You know, the, the you know the auction tag is the is the the main player. But you know, I I, I probably a you know hip pocket would be a um, I wouldn't want to say a two thirds one third, but you know maybe 60 percent of the money comes from the auction tag 40 percent from a raffle have you guys um, ever calculated this out um that's pretty good i think I my I brother yeah my brother ran the numbers out i can't remember if he was confident in it is if the raffle tickets are five bucks how much do you need to spend on raffles before you're doing better than just applying for the tag yeah just kind of i think it was a surprisingly low number yeah where like your odds of getting the tag increased like 25 bucks yeah. or something like that. Yeah. No, the raffles, you know, and it, you know, bunch our 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 community of chapters and affiliates, I mean, that's you know, a raffle is so much better odds than any of any of the state or provincial if if there's an LEH in a in a province, but you know, any of the LEH drawings, a raffle's a much better odds. They're just throwing into the state oh, into the yeah, draw. I mean, you're you're better off getting it, you know, if if you're an aspirational sheep hunter, and we all are. Um, and, you know, get into these raffles or, you know, we've got, you know, the gratuitous plug, but we've got the Less Than One Club, which is an organization or club, if you will, within Wild Sheep Foundation, where for 25 bucks, if you have not taken a wild sheep ram, for 25 bucks, you're entered into a drawing for three doll sheep hunts that we give away at our convention. And we've got... 900 or so 1200 or so in that in that club within wild sheep foundation um you got three chances uh we we spice it a little bit steve because the first drawn you don't have to be present uh the second drawn you got to be present and the third you got to be present to win gotcha um at this last less than one club reception and and a reception's maybe a um, one of our colleagues drew one of those. Yes, yeah, he did. And and but that reception's maybe not the. It's it's basically a beer fest. We went through twenty five kegs of beer in an hour and a half for three sheep tags. Eight, eight kegs, three sheep eight tags, ta- so eight kegs per tag. You bet. So you know we, 
you know, maybe maybe our community is kind of a, a a drinking club with a sheep hunting problem. Yeah, but, yeah. but it's really cool. I mean, the energy in that room is absolutely electric. And you know, when someone that has aspired to be kicked out of the club, and that's what we say: Hey, you join the Lesson One Club hoping to be kicked out, and you're kicked out when you take a ram. Um, you know, we're giving away opportunities for for relatively low dollars. Um, and trying to augment the, the state and provincial drawings that, that are pretty low odds. My buddies, I've been saying how, after many years, I'm saying how I'm like taking a break from SHOT Show. And I say to my buddies, and I'm going to start, I'm going to like spend a couple years at a couple other shows. And I've brought it up with multiple of my friends in the, in the hunting industry, and they universally are like, dude, cheap show. That's fun. It's a family. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a, um, you know, we talked about the altruism, but what, what's cool, and, and I think there's a little bit of a misnomer about who, who we are, because, the, you know, the, the talk comes about, and I threw the numbers out, you know, $4.6 million last year with, with a relatively small club. So the, the, the erroneous assumption is that, it, you know, it's just a bunch of rich folks. It really isn't. It, the, the demographic of our, our, our show are, is, you know, the age is going down and down and down because it's, you know, there's something badass about hunting sheep. Yeah. There's something, something badass about wanting to hunt sheep. Uh, there's something badass about training to hunt sheep. So we're seeing our, our attendance uh, age go down and down and down. We have backpack races indoor, backpack races outdoor. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a fun time. But what, what was interesting, and I had a guy come up to me, and he was actually at the Lesson One Club this year, and he, he said, you know, um, I'm sitting here, there's 1,500 people in this. Because you know, now we let anyone go into the Lesson One Club. You don't have to be in the reception. You don't have to be a member. And people, I mean, guys that have taken 27 sheep come into the Lesson One Club just to see how cool it is for some new aspirational woman or man win their first sheep hunt. Uh, the, 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 the first drawn is a, uh, female mountain climber that's dating a sheep and moose guide in Alaska outfit or in Alaska. And I mean, it was just fabulous when she won. She, you know, she won a f- incredible Northwest Territories doll sheep hunt. She looks down at her boyfriend and, you know, she told me later, she goes, you know, I couldn't sleep that night. So I'm sitting there poking him, you know, in bed going, do you see what I want? Did you see what I want? So, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's, it's cool. And it's the family. But this guy came up to me and he says, Hey, look, he goes, I, I go to all the shows and I do too. I mean, I'm a member of every, uh, all of the organizations are all great. and We support them. But he goes, you know, I, I walk around this room and I have the feeling that there are some real big players in here. He goes, I feel I can talk to anyone in this room and anyone in this room will talk to me. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great family and there's something about wild sheep. You know, I, I, we talk about sheep fever, you know, we talk about it as being a sickness, but there's something about the places they live. Uh, there's something about how challenging it is to get up to where they live. Uh, it's something about the training that you have to do, the mental preparation, you know, and, and, it, and it's probably in, you know, Steve, you hunt in places that are just fabulous. Uh, and do it, and do it the right way. Do it the hard way, and do it the way that we all aspire to hunt. Um, and, but that's kind of the essence of sheep hunting. You know, you you got to earn it. You know, it doesn't come easy. There's no easy rim. Yeah, it's for the hard players. It is. Yeah. Steve, I'm, I uh, spent my life on bighorn sheep, and I am a less than one member. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Really? Yep. I'm not. 
Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I already made a decision. We're going to the uh, Wild Sheep show. Uh, I think, yeah, I want to go this year. I'm yeah, going for sure. Have, and it's not on Shot Show. It's February 7th through 9th, so we're, we're off shot. So I could feasibly. So you yeah, could, I, no, you I, need, I want to spread my wings, man. I got to check some new stuff out. Yeah, you'd love I got to check some new stuff out. Um, any uh, final thoughts around the table? We, we're doing the whole, whole yeah, man. thing. If you, want to, if, you, cool, yeah, but yeah. if you feel that it's all been said, you can just say it's all been said. I don't have any concluding thoughts. Oh, man. I'm, you know, as the preacher said, once I get started, generally I'm too lazy to stop. So <laughs> I don't know if you want me to do that. But, I, you know, I do think it's worth just mentioning, you know, Steve and Giannis, it, it means a lot having you guys here you know, and helping us talk about, you know, what we do as an organization. We, the reality is, is we conserve a species that lives at 14,000 feet and that lives below sea level. Um, and that includes a lot of animals along the way. So that's a good way of putting it, man. I never yeah. thought about it like that. Yeah. I mean, when we do guzzler projects, a, a, a frequent animal that visits is a desert tortoise, right? You know, we just did a rehabilitation um, deal with uh, encroaching conifers and, uh, you know, the guy when we kind of got done goes, well, actually, this is more mule deer habitat than anything else. But, um, you know, so we conserve that species and we have to watch that chain of events happen all the way through those different different elevations as they migrate. We have to watch, you know, just food, um, predator management, obviously domestic sheep conflict, and a lot of people don't know that that hap- has to happen. That chain has to happen the whole way for this to work. And the fact that, you know, you guys are here and helping us tell that story, that just does good things for us. Like helping sheep, you're touching a lot of wildlife. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're taking an animal that lives in the wildest places on both ends of the spectrum and probably one of the more wild animals in nature and behavior, and therefore you encapsulate a lot of critters right in the middle. Yeah. And and so what we do, you know, it has legs. Forty percent of wild sheep conservation comes from us, and we conserve a lot of critters along the way. Well put. Uh, for me, you ask us if if we were optimistic, and and I am. Uh, I think a lot of times we focus on just the disease, just the just the negative side of of the story. And if you look at the numbers we, we, t- today, you have. Uh, uh, a better opportunity to, to see sheep, to hunt sheep. Uh, my kids have, my grandkids have a better opportunity to draw a tag than, than I did when I started my career. Uh, that's important to me. Um, I, I, and I do, I, I am confident that, that, uh, and I, I don't know, I've, I've been accused of, of being Pollyanna. I, I've heard someone said that to me once. Uh, but I, but I'm confident that, that we can come to the table and try to think outside of the box, think a little bit different. Scott touched on it earlier. The science is improving. We're learning more and more all the time. But I'm, I'm confident that, that we will come together to find solutions. And I'm talking about both wild sheep advocates and the livestock industry to work together to achieve things that all of us benefit from. Uh, I'm confident that that can occur. I, I, uh, I just think, I, you know, the, the, the younger, younger generation, I, I, I think they're smarter. I think they, um, yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, I just think, think that, that the future is promising. And, uh, I, I, uh, 
I, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to where we came from. We've, we've invested too much blood, sweat, and tears uh, to, to be where we are today. And, and I'm, I'm proud of the Wild Sheep Foundation. I'm proud of what we do every day, and I'm proud to work for the organization. Uh, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe in the mission. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about where we're headed. And never got a sheep. Not on purpose. I'll say it that way. Through, uh, I, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> Never got a sheep. Do you draw? For, do you put in for sheep tags? I do. I do. Huh? A lot, like Steve, thirteen Western states. <laughs> no, probably not that much. <laughs> I don't know if it's that many, but it's a handful. Yanni, you good? Or? Can you guys answer this quickly? Because I heard a little. I heard a rumor. Are, are llamas bad? Oh, that's a, that's the main thing sheep? I wanted to ask. Is uh, my brother? Is my brother need to kill all his llamas? Camelids. Yeah, you know we're we're not as worried. No, um, just give it to me straight. Yeah, man. we're not as worried about them. There's there's some new papers coming out. Clay, maybe you talk about Scott. You can talk. About. I know uh, uh, Helen Schwanchi up in British Columbia is a little bit more concerned about them um, than we are. You know, it's kind of like pack goats. Uh, we're pretty concerned about pack goats, and, and you know, as we as we learn more and more, pack goats seem to be more likely MOV free than than uh, you know just a boar goat running around the. So, um, but but llamas can carry it. No, they can't carry mycop. Well, they shouldn't be able to carry mycoplasma ovum pneumonia. You know, the ovum. You know, the ova. Why do people keep Why do people keep texting me to bust my brother's balls about yeah, hunting with llamas? We. There's some potential disease There's, risk there. Yeah, and we and, and it's it's kind of like a, it's way. another rock that we gotta and turn and just I go. See. Gosh, now do we gotta get involved with the llamas? Even <laughs> even the pack goat yeah. industry thing. Uh, pack goats are a big thing. We're working with the pack goat industry right now to to develop some best management practices that we believe would work, that would involve some testing and other things. Kevin Hurley's actually meeting with those folks here. Well, you're distributing uh, goat recipes? Uh, no. No? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, a, good, got, a good goat will do that. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, it, it, uh, for, uh, the, the short version is, for us, at this stage of the game, it's not worth gambling with. We don't believe that it's worth a gamble. I see. So. Have, we- have your brother test it. I will. Yeah, yeah, he can have his tested. Absolutely. Just yeah, just he probably no. He's not like a. He's not a negligent dude. I just haven't talked about it with him lately. I'm sure that he's doing whatever he should be doing, and he's the kind of guy too that I think if someone like laid out for him like a really compelling case, I feel like he'd just be like, okay, I'm going to buy a horse. Yeah, which is smarter anyway. Well, he just doesn't have that that background, man. People that grow up around horses, you, you can't catch them. Yeah, his wife, is who is a horse, I don't know, I don't want to say whisper, that's no, weird. No, she's but like, like a she, horse she works master horses almost every horses. day. Her dad grew up around horses, her great-grandfather. She recommends that he does not get involved with horses. <laughs> <laughs> is this the brother that lives in Mile City? Yeah, and his wife comes from a long, long line of, of horsemen, um, breeders and, you know, and uh, ranchers. And she, she has she's, she's recommended that he temperamentally needs to steer clear of horses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got something. Oh, was that was that your concluder? Yeah, yeah. that was all. Yeah. Thank you. That's a good one because I forgot about that and that was top of mind. Did man. we properly dodge it? Mm-hmm. No, but it was enough. I, I said I got some code language. We, we, yeah, we don't <laughs> want to poke that one in the eye right now. We got enough. Yeah, you issues. got bigger fish to fry, yeah. right? 
I'll just rewind just a little bit. I Please. Think if there's, you know, there might be some listeners that are maybe a little confused about the setup, just some about the sheep ecology and the, and the situation that we're in. So okay. historically, sheep evolved in, you know, in large metapopulations of well-connected subpopulations. So individual two to a hundred size groups, right? So all these, oh, could, you're on domestics or bighorns? Bighorn sheep. Okay. So they were, you know, moving through the landscape, you know, maybe ram groups going to breed different groups of ewes. And so we had this sort of network of connection, depending on the habitat, like think about the basin and range in Nevada, those mountain ranges that jut up out of desert sheep would go across those right so that's where in modern times we've got humans in the bottom sheep you know full year-round sheep year-round sheep habitat on top they cross we that's where we're running into our problems the river systems they're traveling up and down so their ecology and their their evolution is to move in between groups and so functionally we want to manage for large groups of sheep rather than small isolated groups because there's all kinds of negative impacts of that. So we're kind of stuck in that, that problem where we like, okay, here's a good piece of habitat, but we've got surrounded by domestics and we can't have sheep shooting out of it and going to talk to their, their friends upriver. Okay. So we've kind of gotten ourselves into a little bit of a pickle. And so that's, that's you mean one by of the a little bit of a pickle by thinking in pocket mentality. Exactly. Oh, we could exactly. have a few here. We could have a few there. Yes, but yeah. they can't, but if they come out, we can't, we can't let them come out in the valley or we're going to remove them so we've kind of got ourselves into a bind that way but but look at all this great sheep habitat we have and, and we want to have sheep there but at the same time it's hard to let them be sheep because their natural tendency is to move around between groups and you know eventually spread out that's an excellent point excellent point in 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 texas you know we built those populations meta populations there's constant interchange between populations and we've encouraged that because we haven't had the domestic sheep issues to deal with so that's yep. an excellent point yeah trying to that and trying to restore that connectivity of herds really like it's 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 the pie in the sky and it's it's right in waffles um, you know, main goal as far as con- connectivity and, and metapopulation management is that that's the that's the goal we're shooting for. Not just to have one big population or, or one robust one here. We need a bunch of them that are all functioning together, exchanging genetic material, and, that are talking and, to each other. Know, they're yeah. they're more resilient to disease outbreaks when you have a whole bunch of dif- different scattered groups of sheep, and they're they're moving their genes in between. And, and it's just it's that's the setup we need to go for. And it seems to give you a situation to have localized disasters yeah. horrible winters and 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 yeah. then hopefully yeah. get them back without needing yeah. to then have it be by a helicopter exactly yeah. yeah so that was just one thing i think people might missed out on if they're you know not familiar with sheep and, and how they've evolved no that's, um, a, that's a good point and it's, yeah, and it's, yeah and it, it spans habitat types too generally um and then i guess my my little concluder is i mean we've we've had a great discussion today and i thank you for having me um and a lot of the sheep habitats on public land. So folks listening, if you, if this hit strikes a chord, get involved. I mean, it's a public lands, public wildlife, you know, you need to be, if you want to be heard, you got to be there, you know, and a lot of these decisions are being made, you know, policy level stuff that's disconnected from the science. And if you don't like it, you need to be there. And so that's my main point is get involved. Yeah. It's your your sheep. These are, these are everybody's sheep and we need to be, be there to make good decisions and uh, yeah so and i hope that everybody listening will be able to someday draw a sheep tag I me too put, man <laughs> you know you've hunted all over the west how many bighorn mountains have you passed sheep mountain sheep ridge big sheep ridge most of them don't have sheep yeah so, that's a good point i think man. we need to get we need to get there 
where bighorns and sheep mountains are, are restored with sheep, bighorn sheep. Yeah, if every sheep mountain had a sheep on it, we'd be in good shape. Yeah. yeah. So one, st- one last concluder. One last concluder. Um, Steve Giannis, first, first and foremost, I um, want to thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I, I talked about Wild Sheep Foundation casting a, a broad conservation shadow. Um, you cast a huge communications shadow. And a lot about what we were talking about today was education. And you've provided us an opportunity to educate a hell of a lot of people, and we're grateful. Um, the final thought that I'd like to, to, to say is that, you know, we, we, you touched on it on this, the extremes. You know, there's an extreme on the right, there's an extreme on the left. Um, and I've said this a few times to a few different groups, and I think it resonates. If, if we could concentrate, whether it's the non-consumptive community, the hunting community, the conservation community, the environmental community, the, the domestic sheep industry, the cattle industry, the you know whatever, and the wild sheep advocacy community, if we could aspire, work, and focus on the 80 to 90 percent that we agree on, and not spend all our time on the 10 to 20% that we disagree on. Yeah. We can move mountains. So that's kind of our new narrative. Let's let's start looking at the areas where we agree and work on those and not bitch and moan and focus on the areas we disagree. It's on. an interesting idea that you imagine a big room and everyone's in it and you make an announcement. If you think wild sheep are cool, come over in this room. And most people are going to wander in the room and then start there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Put our differences aside. Look for areas that we can work together, not areas that we spend all our time fighting. Yeah. You get a lot of work done in that space. We'll put and keep sheep on the mountain. Wild sheep. Yeah. Well, it's an admirable goal, man. I think that anyone who, you know, is up in some high, crazy mountain peak where you just kind of like happy with yourself for just having gotten up there and to see one of those things crest out and turn his head and there's those curls it's just magical makes it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck yeah it's like you are you're there seeing touching feeling wilderness all right well thank you very much for coming on everyone i appreciate the time Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code Meat Eater. So go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.